Digital Drift, episode 20, recorded Wednesday the 19th of March 2014, X-Men First Class. You have the chance to become part of something much bigger than yourself. What do you know about me? Everything. A new species is being born. Help me guide it. Shape it. Lead it. Time for the tour. You have no idea what I'd give to feel normal. You want society to accept you, but you can't even accept yourself. Should we have to hide? Tomorrow, mankind will know that mutants exist. They'll fear us. And that fear will turn to hatred. Not if we stop a war. Not if we risk our lives doing so. We have it in us to be the better man. We already are. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. They're just kids. No, they were kids. You ready for this? Let's find out. Cost of freedom is always high. No one can foresee precisely what cost it will take. One path we shall never choose. That is the path of surrender. Listen to me very carefully, my friend. Killing will not bring you peace. Peace was never an option. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. We're back to review the fifth X-Men movie, this time directed by Matthew Vaughan, who nearly helmed X-Men 3. Vaughan is a classy British chap who understands film at both ends of the production process. He produced Guy Ritchie's exceptionally popular Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, and went on to direct Layer Cake. Following that, his geekier side began to shine through with films like Stardust and Kick-Ass, When offered another chance to direct an X-Men film, even one that had to be delivered at speed, he steeled himself and took the job, and the world was a better place for it. This began life as two movies. Firstly, X-Men Origins Magneto. This was billed as X-Men Meets the Pianist and would feature McKellen's face pasted onto a younger actor for much of the scenes. In a rare case of good fortune, it was delayed by the writer's strike. Secondly, a reboot of the X-Men series, following the pretty definitive ending of X-Men 3, which slaughtered three of the core characters and left three more with no powers, smashed together with a syrupy, happy ending for mutants and humanity. There was pretty much no way to continue, so naturally, rather than abandon the lucrative franchise, Fox sought to start afresh, much as with The Amazing Spider-Man, The Incredible Hulk, Batman Begins, Man of Steel, and the upcoming Fantastic Four and Daredevil projects. 
In an inspired decision, the two projects were combined in a way that didn't throw the mutant baby out with the bathwater and actually still fit into cinematic X-Men continuity. Brian Singer had been asked to direct, but as with X-Men 3, he dropped out to go and shoot another movie. Unlike Superman Returns, however, Jack the Giant Slayer was a rancid, festering turd that pleased nobody and later caused Singer to rethink his ex-commitments. Vaughn at first believed the studio was joking after he'd backed out of X-Men 3. But as they were impressed with Kickass and gave him license to make a film of his own rather than the atrocious compromised mess that they usually demand, Vaughn reacted extremely positively to the 1962 setting, citing that this would allow him to direct an X-Men movie, a classical Bond film and a John Frankenheimer-style political thriller. Once again, we have a tremendous amount of bullet points here to discuss this, which sits head and shoulders above the other X-Men movies, principally because it is an excellently measured drama and a thriller first, and an action sci-fi second. So to begin with, and this is very, very rarely done in cinema. In fact, I seem to remember um, the only other film that it's uh, really been done in, we've already reviewed and we cited this as the only other example. Back to the Future 2, they refilmed the end of Back to the Future 1 for Back to the Future 2 to put uh, Elizabeth Shue in the role of Jennifer. And for this, we needed to see a young Eric played by the actor that, that would then go on to do the scene with Kevin Bacon. So it's, it's pretty much shot for shot of the original. So it puts you right back to the beginning and makes a very clear statement that we're back in serious country. Yeah, something struck me this time that um, for some reason it didn't with the uh, the original version of this. I mean, this might seem fairly obvious with the whole thing about uh, Magneto's powers being magnetic, um, but when he's an adult, you actually see him doing a lot more with his powers um, in terms of where he can move things and and what he can do, and some of it's very small, dexterous control, and some of it's very big and and loud and explodey. The essence of his power, the essence of his ability, is to pull. It seems to me to be a very defensive act. It's about drawing things to him so he can protect them. And how that is twisted to form what he ends up becoming and what he ends up being able to do, there seems to be an extra layer of of sort of emotional agitation onto that. But that seems to be the root of it for me, that he's trying to pull things to him so he can can defend them. Yes... It immediately cuts to uh, Westchester and the ex-mansion so that you can see that Charles really has uh, lived there his entire life. And you get to see Charles as a kid who seems younger than Eric simply because of the situation he's in. You know, he's in pyjamas, he seems soft, he seems pleasant, although he is immediately a little bit invasive and a little bit Damien the Omen when he uh, jumps into the head of his mother. And it's, it's he's almost frightening. But then... That is dispensed with the moment Raven reveals herself. And there's this lovely... I mean, Raven has her own theme throughout the film, that that lovely bit of piano music, which I used for Barbara Gordon in Batman Breakdown. Because you're used to seeing uh, Mystique reveal herself in a sort of a, ha-ha, it was I, Mystique, all along, and then do, like, Matrix-style fighty punch moves, to have an imposter reveal themselves to be an effectively harmless-looking, frightened blue girl... And for her to then be given mercy and warmth from young Charles, you get this wonderful, gentle introduction to these two characters to show that they've had... Raven's come from a life of uh, being outcast, but she's being drawn in right away to a life of 
if not universal love, because from the sounds of it, uh, Charles isn't doesn't get on too well with his mum, she's safe for the first time. Held in stark contrast with Eric. Mm. And she's... Um, one thing that I, I loved about this scene was um, how genuinely beautiful the joy in her is when she realises that um, that Charles doesn't hate her or he's not recoiling from the way she looks mm. um, and it is really interesting to see how that changes as they get older and then by contrast we jump to Shaw and he, he starts off immediately saying I'm not like the Nazis and it proceeds to act like a Nazi mm-hmm yeah, his his sort of obsession with the uh, the genetic potential of mutants is he couldn't really get much of a credit card in between that and the Nazi obsession with superior humans. So uh, you know, I suppose actually now that I say it, uh, when Nazis are portrayed on film, they seem maniacal. They seem incredibly dedicated to their cause. They tend to, you, you, if you're going to talk about the Gestapo, they tend to use that as a, almost an excuse to be incredibly cruel. It's clear Shaw answers to no man and seems to have no credence but his own. But uh, his embracing of their methods as, uh, to use as part of his toolbox to get the reactions he needs out of people, it's, it's appalling. It's an extremely tense scene played out, and then when you get the cut across and you see what's on their right, that covered room uh, filled with uh, implements of torture and metal, there's a sort of a sound in the soundtrack, and you're like, oh, shit, this is going to go very, very wrong. In essence, it's the birthing chamber for the monster inside Eric. Mm. Well, the, the fact that... I mean, Shaw is very explicit about the fact that that anger and pain is what he perceives to be the key to unlocking what Eric can do. And the fact that he is ultimately so successful in using that. I mean, the, the end of that scene, it, it seems pretty obvious that that's not all that happened. That there there were many, many days and weeks and potentially months in which Eric was probably tortured in order to get him to um, release this magnetic ability. And that his his being able to use that becomes hardwired in being hurt, being angry. And it's not until much, much later that Charles gives him a glimmer of possibility that there could be other ways for him to be able to uh, to use that power ultimately ways that he decides <clears throat> either are too difficult or too painful to try and use so he falls back on the anger and pain that's how well Shaw programs him it lasts the rest of his life the, the kid here playing Eric is Bill Milner who uh, you remember from the film Son of Rambo oh oh my god you forgot oh <gasps> I did. As in, like, Lee. No, not Lee. Um, Will Proudfoot. Will, that's the one. The oh, shy, mousy God. boy who gets drawn out of his shell in the yeah. uh, film. He, he's an exceptional little performer in that. It's a heartbreaking scene in this. Mm. And the, the significance of the coin, uh, on, on a very superficial level, I was like, oh, God, they've got, like, a Nazi um, swastika symbol here, and then that's going to turn into the X for X-Men? You're going to confuse people with that. And I thought, no, hang on, the point they're trying to make with this, and I could be wrong on this one, is that Eric and Charles are two sides of the same coin. 
There is that. There's also the fact that you see an awful lot of American governmental symbols knocking around when you get into the CIA building in places like that. So you've got eagles being compared with each other. Rather a lot of eagles and oppression. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's that. Um, there's, there's the fact that uh, Eric keeps mementos of this terrible period in his life rather than finding ways to let it go he seeks to remind himself of what happened um, in order to keep his fury hot and the coin is the simplest one because he can carry it around with him and it turns out to be an extremely effective weapon in fact most of the things he keeps with him tend to be metal mm-hmm. for a good reason We then cut to the adult Charles, and it wasn't until I started writing these notes that I realised how many flaws he displays in this first opening sequence. They're immediately trying to spell the uh, uh, illusions you have of the Charles Xavier you've seen so far in the uh, in the previous X-Men films. He's always been as he was portrayed in the cartoon and as he was portrayed mostly in the comic as uh, very benevolent and very kind, very wise, very uh, unwilling to commit uh, any acts of violence or force and hiding all of his um, uh, frustrations uh, beneath the surface. And in some of the better comics, that, that gets drawn out of him. In this, he abuses his power over and over again. Mm-hmm. Usually to get laid, by the looks of things. Yeah, he's... Uh, I've put flaws. He's a slick git immediately. He's one of those slimy fuckers who comes up to you in the pub and starts a line on you. Uh, he also uses his dazzling wits and uh, uh, well-read abilities to kind of, I suppose, goodwill hunting himself into that girl with uh, two different coloured eyes pants. Mm-hmm. And then he uses exactly, exactly the same lines on Moira. So it, that is yeah. obviously his patter. He obviously uses it on everyone. It's specifically good for the Moira bit because they just drunk a yard of ale and he's like, sort of, you're a super mutant because you've got open hair. And basically he goes around telling everyone, you're a mutant so you can grease my pole. Um, he's smug. Oh my god, is he smug. Uh, he treats Raven like a child. Now, Raven, from the sounds of it later, with, uh, when Beast explains, has uh, unusual genes which allow her to remain uh, fairly young and age extremely slowly, um, which accounts for the fact that why she's at least, at the very least, Charles's age, and yet resembles a 17-year-old uh, girl as opposed to a 30-year-old man. And it also explains why she's a 30-year-old woman in the year 2000, sort of. Mm. I, I could be wrong, but I think Sebastian Shaw must have something kind of similar, because uh, he, otherwise he does, he'd, he'd have to be about 30 when he's in the uh, concentration camps. Yeah, no, he, he does state that, that all the energy he absorbs in some way it keeps him young. Mm, okay, well, that explains it. It also it, um, suggests that mutants have been around for a very long time, longer than... Because Charles was often billed as the first mutant, but uh, then they retcon that and said actually no it was apocalypse and then they started more recently deepening the apocalypse story and saying oh there was a bunch of apocalypses around yeah. thousands of years thousands of years ago and when you say the first mutant i'm assuming you're talking in terms of uh, the first tony yeah, sapiens superior not, not tony with feet yeah <laughs> um indeed 
Yeah, uh, Charles, he's, he's tactless, he's insensitive at times, he's invasive, and even though he's in- incredibly sensitive and that's, and compassionate and that's one of his qualities, he can't, he can't read Raven. He, he, he seems to have no interest in, in, in working out what she's going through. Well, she says that he'd promised her he would never read her mind, which suggests that because he can read people's minds, he hasn't bothered to learn how to read them any other way. Oh, that's good. That does make sense. At the same time, though, if you're reading people's minds, that means you're in and out of other people's minds. That means you are, by nature, empathic. So it is a character flaw for him to lack that and for him to have to develop that later on. Also, bear in mind, and, and this is this is something that... Right. I will keep coming back to this over the course of this discussion. Um, but basically, as I was compiling my notes um, for this film, I realized that I could effectively put together an essay entitled X-Men First Class or How the Patriarchy Fucks Everybody. Um, <laughs> and it, what struck me about the way... Uh, that, that Charles is specifically in this film and one of the things I love about his character in this film is he has an arc mm. he has a very very definite arc and it's not just a case of he is one way at the beginning of the film and another way at the end of the film you can see him change it's a it's a visible obvious thing you can see him change from scene to scene to scene depending on what's happening and, and what's going on and how many different perspectives he's being exposed to and how many different ideas he's having to take on board and how many different people's um, experiences and pains he is having to comprehend yeah. but he is i'm just trying to think what's the best way to put this At the beginning of the film, he's been brought up in this mansion. It's very obvious that his family are extremely wealthy. He's gone to Oxford University, so he's surrounded by people who are also very wealthy and also very intelligent, but where intelligence is not really um, something that demands anything of you. It's just a way to get good grades to get yourself onto the next stage. I would would guess, seeing how um, his experience of different types of people changes him as a person it's the fact that most of the people he's encountered in this first segment of his life have all been very very similar and their lives have all been pretty damn cushy and most of the pain that they've experienced has probably been pretty minimal or at least if there's if there is genuine hurt there it's been softened by the fact that they're very wealthy and and their uh, their surroundings are very beautiful and they get the things that they want because of the the intelligence that they have and the breeding that they have and the background that they've got and all that kind of thing so I I think that's a big part of it just he has not experienced enough of the world and enough of the the different kinds of people different kinds of experiences at that point in his life for that empathy to have started to develop yet it's very important that we start off with Charles and he's not just a golden boy if Mm. if he'd been uh, basically a miniature hairy version of Patrick Stewart uh, it would have felt like, well, there, there's no progress between 1962 and 2000 here. There's nothing to be made, aside Absolutely. from the fact that he loses the abilities of his legs. It's uh, he's, he's on a journey. And significantly, by the end of the film, he's still nowhere near Xavier. There's still a lot of, uh, well, the Xavier we know, uh, there's still a lot of ground for him to cover. So that's... Uh, that makes it feel far, far more organic. If they'd sort of tied it up neatly at the end of the film, he is... 
exactly as I previously described, and they'd whip the hair off him at the end as well. They were like, right, and that's how Xavier happened. Well, that, that would feel rather like, I don't know, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Absolutely. It would be cheating. It would be completely inauthentic. And also, it would undermine one of the... Uh, one of the key character changes in the entire story. Because if it, if it goes like, right, this is how he is, and he's boorish, and he tends towards being crass, and he doesn't really understand people, despite the fact that he has intimate knowledge of how their brains work, and I have to admit, some of the uh, the psychological tweaks that he indulges in as this film progresses, I, just, I, I would slap him, honestly. <laughs> it's like, Charles, you can't do that. That really is completely you know inappropriate and and unfair um but to go right but you see bullet in the spine and now he can't walk and the shock made all his hair fall out and turned him into a marvelous wonderful person yes because that's what happens when you become disabled all of a sudden your personality goes oh there's so much more to life and i didn't know before because i could walk and it's massively massively patronizing so i'm very glad they didn't do that individuals with extraordinary abilities may already be among us McTaggart, you really think that some crackpot scientist is going to make me believe in sparkly dames and vanishing men? I didn't really expect you to believe me. One of the many spectacular things my mutation allows me to do is that I can read your mind. Are you going to ask us to think of a number between one and ten now? <laughs> no, Agent Stryker, although I could ask you about the Jupiter missiles America are currently placing in Turkey. You brought a damn spy into this As that for a magic trick? Best I've ever seen. Okay, so Raven Dark Home. Uh, I was trying to think of the uh, positive qualities of her because ultimately you've got uh, Jennifer Lawrence there looking incredibly lovely and charming and, and smart. And I was thinking, well, what, what does she have? Because she's hiding the whole time and she's resentful and she's scared and vulnerable. Those aren't necessarily good qualities. Uh, but she has... And this is something I noticed last night. A lot of love to give. It's like she was... It's almost like she's been saving her entire life to give to Charles, but he's not interested. Um, and he, he wants to keep her at a certain distance and, and keep her as a certain kind of friend. And he's never really going to take her as seriously as she requires. She then gives it to Hank, and he doesn't want to accept who she really is. She then gives it to Eric, and Eric accepts everything about her and allows her to be herself and specifically allows her to fight for a cause where other people like herself can feel less afraid. You could see how Eric would be very... Attractive. More than attractive. A cause you would want to devote yourself to. One of the uh, uh, things they were trying to do with this is that by the end, when uh, everyone's making their decisions, they wanted the audience to not quite be sure which way they'd go and for it to be a sort of Shades of Grey scenario, which is something they never did in any of the other X-Men films. Because Magneto's just a homicidal fuck. Well, there's a lot of... With crazy plans. Yeah, there, there is very much a focus in this film, um, which I, I really did appreciate, um, about the mutants. And I know that seems really obvious, but you see how much interaction they have with humans. It's extremely minimal. Yeah. It's not about how mutants relate to the rest of humanity. It's about how mutants relate to each other. Yeah. And where those differing ideologies are going to take them ultimately. And it's, it's very broken down into 
uh, different ways of looking at things. You, you don't just have Charles Good, Eric Bad, um, or even Charles A, Eric B. It, it's not that simple. There are so many people involved in their causes for their own reasons and with their own motives and uh, with their own oppressions that they're responding to that it, it maintains this idea that variety and that's what mutation is about. It's about variety. It's about diversity. It's about the fact that if everybody is the same, the human race dies because it falls into entropy. I would say the group of people who most represent humankind in this is the CIA. And they are all besuited, slightly wrinkly white guys. Madman. Yeah. And the mutants are the diversity of the rest of the world if you like and all the different ways in which they are held down or um, persecuted even the ones who think that they've actually got it reasonably good like Charles who has his money and his education um, and largely because his uh, mutation is invisible and nobody can see it unless he chooses to share it with them and also even when they do know about it if it's something that is useful to them then they are willing to work with him to exploit it one thing that um, that I really loved about the way Raven was portrayed in this is that she is representative of um, the idea of, of appearance being such a restrictive thing and it, this is particularly true for women but the idea that you have an accepted standard of beauty and if you don't meet that you will never be allowed to achieve all that you can achieve you know there are certain avenues that will be closed off to you if you do not meet the this is what we think you should look like and if you look at the image that she sculpts for herself because that's not her that's not just her but not blue. There are very significant differences. You know, her hair is very different, not just the colour, but the texture, the style. Her hair, when it's red, is very stiff. And her skin is not blue and smooth. It's very scaly. And, and there's um, things about it that if she, if you just painted her white and blonde in her actual form she would still not meet the standard of beauty so it's it's not as simple as as something superficial like that um but she's it's not simply pigmentation absolutely and but she is made to feel by both charles and hank who are the the two men that she initially reaches out to um that her natural form is not beautiful Beyond that it is not beautiful, they reinforce for her that if she looks the way she is supposed to look... Um, no one will ever accept her. Exactly. <laughs> Their words. Yeah, that, that, that will not be, not just not be considered beautiful, but will not be acceptable. And Charles is horrified by the idea of her going out as who she is. It takes Eric to come along and point out to her how much of her time and concentration has to be taken up by looking this you know, model of acceptable standard of beauty. And any woman who has spent most of her life in constant makeup and hairstyling will empathise with how much of your time and how much of your energy and focus and concentration is just hung up in this idea that not, not that you want to look devastatingly gorgeous, that's not what it's about, just that if you don't do all that, you will not be acceptable. You will not meet the minimum standard. 
you're using half your concentration to look normal, then you're only half paying attention to whatever else you're doing. Just pointing out something that could save your life. You want society to accept you, but you can't even accept yourself. Even Eric's approval of her is ever so slightly tainted the way I see it, because it, although he refers to her as perfect when she's in her natural form, there's a hardness to the way he responds to her that suggests to me that's still not about her. He thinks she's beautiful because she represents mutation. She looks like she is made to evolve and adapt, and that is what he's drawn to, not her as a person. But ultimately, that's good enough for her. Yeah, which, again, it's it's better than the alternative, she, alternative she's being presented with, which is Charles refusing to let her go out unless she looks like Jennifer Lawrence. And um, Hank... Actively trying to take away her mutations so absolutely. that she can be as normal as possible. Yeah, actively rejecting her. And we, we know he's not really rejecting her. He's rejecting himself. But that's kind of not the point not in her eyes anyway back to what i said about uh, magneto being a homicidal fuck there are of course moments mostly through the first and part of the second uh, x-men films where uh, mckellen's performance and the shades of gray characterization gives him the window to give magneto a bit more and he does extremely well with that but most of the time he is given very slim pickings. And it's not simply that he's a homicidal fuck, it's that he's a smug homicidal fuck. And the fact that the people following him are knuckle-dragging morons and lackeys and twisted bozos with not much to say or do, that you think, well, I wouldn't follow him because look at the people who are following him. Mm. There's no I choice there. I think, you want to hang out on Team Wolverine or Team this guy? <laughs> what, what falls down with the first films, I think, is that when it comes to Magneto, they are so hung up on portraying what he wants to do. And it's usually some stupid, dumb plan that involves some kind of technology that we never really gets explained. But there's so much focus on what he's trying to do. They never look at why. Not really. I mean, it's, there's this kind of overarching, you know, loves mutants, hates humans umbrella thing. But they never really look at why. Ju you're just expected to make that leap from, well, there you go, concentration camp. Obviously, he hates everybody. This film's chock full of why. It's chock full of grey. Absolutely. <laughs> Right, Las Vegas and the uh, Connery-style Bond stylings. So if you look at the, the all of the 60s Bonds, so you're going to have to include uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service with this, so Lazenby and Connery, uh, they, they went for the uh, set design of things like uh, Dr. No, Goldfinger from Russia with Love, uh, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and for Las Vegas, Diamonds Are Forever. The worst Connery Bond, maybe the worst Bond. 
it seems like that uh, bit of footage of, uh, on the strip is actually documentary footage of the strip. I could be wrong, but uh, it really... It seems slightly too high quality to be actual documentary footage. It puts you in the moment, most definitely, and it's not a good moment. You're like, the world was like this. It feels like Austin Powers. Uh, not, not necessarily in a good way, but at the same time, Shaw has surrounded himself in this ridiculous razzmatazz and girls in their undies. Um, Which I, I was very disappointed that they didn't turn out to be fembots. <laughs> Send in the fembots! Um, so, but this leads to, you said something on the lines of every woman in this film, apart from the respective mothers of Eric and Charles, are sexy, sexy, sexy. I said, what's wrong with being sexy? And you said... The female characters in in the whole of the film, pretty much, the the emphasis is in various different ways um, how they look is relevant, um, and they are dolled up. But it's actually I I was mostly joking about it, um, but it is actually done in a way that you can deconstruct it. And and as I said, I've, I've already talked about how it comes across with um, with Raven. Um, if you look at the way that scene plays out with Moira, um, you've got the, the girls all getting out of the limos, and it's it's literally underwear. There's there's nothing costumey about it. They are literally just in their underwear, um, and Moira slips into the party by doing the same thing. She just you know takes off her agent outfit, which still consists of a pretty short skirt, to be fair, and some knee-high boots, but it's the 60s. You've kind of got to let some shit slide. Um, so she's... You've, you've got this quick thinking, obviously well-trained, highly capable agent who sees an opportunity and takes her clothes off in order to manipulate her way into the Hellfire Club. It's It's... You know, that straightforward. And it would be very easy to look at that and go, that was patently just an excuse to get Rose Byrne to take her clothes off. Is there a butt coming? There certainly there was in X-Men First Class. There was indeed. There were several butts in X-Men First Class. But no, um, it, it, when I when I thought about that scene a little bit more closely, there's a couple of things that I think are worth commenting on. The fact that uh, Moira does not disguise herself. She's not... Um, sort out a costume um she has literally just taken off the cia exterior um now she's if, if you're going to look at the cia as being sort of this this white power structure um that that the mutants are by definition in opposition to um she's the link between the two but she's not a link that, despite the fact that she is part of this very patriarchal group, they don't support her. They mock her. They ridicule her. They don't take her seriously. Um, and by uh, removing the, the suit, the skirt suit, um, she manages to uh, slip in behind this group of women very easily. And you could interpret that as being as saying that sort of, you know, underneath – all of these women are the same that, you know, they're in, in terms of, you know, the same heartbeats, the same feelings are there, the same um, uh, potential for, for skills and understanding and, and ability. It's just that Moira uses it differently. She's she's using this um, uh, this equipment that the CIA didn't give her um, in order to uh, spy and in order to find out what's going on. And the fact that she is then 
sort of incorporated into the mutant group, I think kind of makes that point that she, although she's tried to, um, uh, to use her skills and abilities to side with this power structure, um, ultimately that proves to be a waste of her time and a waste of her skill. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they do things like threatening to send her back to the typing pool because they think that she's made this massive error of judgment. And um, I'm not going to say that that legitimizes the choice to have Rose Byrne parading around in her underwear. But it does go to show that you can it, it's very easy to um, dismiss costume choices of that nature and boy, howdy, there are several when it comes to Emma Frost. But I think that there is more to it than that. <clears throat> I was uh, trying to think of uh, positive uh, aspects to the character of Moira McTaggart. And I thought, well, she's smart. <laughs> she moves the plot along. Mm, yeah. The character in the comics is a Scottish scientist. Uh, I think she's into uh, neurogeneticism or something like that. Some, something that's not a made-up word. Um, simply her name and attachment to Charles Xavier seems to be the only thing that they have exported exported from the comics. Although in theory she could go back to do um, studies in genetics when the CIA throw her out. Neurogeneticism. Sorry, neurogenetics, um, which, which they are blatantly going to do. Yeah. Because that's, that's the other thing about Moira, which slightly annoyed me, but then I decided I was going to interpret that end scene a little bit differently. Um, when she goes at the, at the end of the film, she ends up at a hearing about what's gone on. And I got rather annoyed at the idea that Charles had once again misused his abilities to do the old Superman roofie kiss trick and wipe her memories. Um, but then it occurred to me that, as I've said before, Moira is a very capable agent, very highly trained, very dedicated to her work and very good at her job. There is no way that somebody who is like that would sit in front of a room of men who are already staring down their nose at you and assuming that you are not good enough to do the job that you've been doing and say to them, well, I do remember some things, sunlight. A kiss. No, she's putting it on. This is a ruse, as far as I'm concerned. Do you Yeah, because if she genuinely had no memory of the situation because Charles had wiped it... She's committing career suicide. Exactly. You, She wouldn't do that. I don't think she would do that by accident. She would look them straight in the eye and say, do you know what? He's wiped my memory. I can't remember a thing. He wiped it with the mutant powers. Go and arrest his ass. That would possibly be one approach, but no. See, I mean, they, they could try, but then all of the uh, CIA agents sent to bring him in would be found at the local shopping mall buying women's lingerie for some reason. Not quite sure why. Indeed. You really you can't get the drop on Charles Xavier. Doesn't work like that. It would appear not. But yeah, so I, I think personally that there is some kind. He may have removed certain memories so that she couldn't be like lie detector test or sodium pentafold or anything like that, but I, I think it's it was an agreement between them rather than simply he wiped her memory and then sent her wandering back into the CIA with one finger in her mouth and staring dazedly at the clouds. Law says we've got to turn her over. The law applies to human beings. The same laws don't apply to mutants. They're too dangerous. There's a war coming, John. Yes, but a war with who?
Excellent question. Though I wouldn't call it a war exactly. That suggests both sides stand an equal chance of winning. <laughs> One other thing that really bothered me about that is it after that scene, it pans downwards to where they've got the white queen in in their basement, sort of like in in that same room that Sharon Stone's in in Basic Instinct, and uh, it just reminded me of that bit that the operative says in Serenity. Key members of Parliament. Key. The minds behind every military diplomatic and covert operation in the galaxy and you put them in a room with a psychic what the fuck are they playing at unless that room is surrounded by anti-telepathy metal of the same kind that magneto's helmet is made of but we know it's not because emma sat in there watching the mirror, and then she sort of walks forward, cuts a hole in the glass, taps it open, and then talks to them about what they've been talking about and thinking about behind the glass. Ergo, she can read their minds through it. So it's not a secure room, and it's right under their feet, and she's listening to CIA secrets, and they know she is. It does not get stupider than that. Well, it's the CIA. They are not portrayed well in this film, as we have discussed. No, they're not. Right, now, January Jones' Emma Frost is one of the bones of contention, bones being the operative word. For people who watch this movie, they, there are a lot of people saying, everything was great apart from January Jones, which I don't think is necessarily true on either count. No, I, I think she was great. It's the same thing I said about Rogue. This is not the Emma Frost I know. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily stop her from being a, a reasonable character. I've only seen one really well-realized Emma Frost, and that uh, was, uh, I I believe, Jennifer Hale in Wolverine and the X-Men. She's British. She's sarcastic. uh, She is very cold. She's very emotionally withholding. She's very manipulative. And this Frost sort of is in that same ballpark. Mm. I think, again, though, it's the same fall-down as with Magneto in the first three that you don't really get a great deal of motivation in terms of, of why she behaves the way she does. I yeah, mean, yeah. There, there are things that I have picked up on, but they are inferred. It's not, um, it's not something that's obviously there in the, the dialogue or anything like that. Like for example, the fact that, that she does wear the ridiculous costumes that she does I will say here and now, as a huge X-Men comic fan, they are nowhere near, not even in the same ballpark as the ridiculous costumes that she wears in the comics. Which shouldn't even stay up. Which, yeah, they they are costumes that cannot possibly exist in a world where she is not also telekinetic and able to hold her clothes on at all times. But once you see the way that she interacts with the uh, the men that she is inevitably uh, using for information or power or whatever, she seems to use her appearance to complement her telepathic abilities in a way. She she dresses in a manner that means that the men around her are basically too busy ogling her boobs to be really thinking about anything else, which means that she has to do less telepathic manipulation of them. She keeps them distracted. She keeps them on the back foot. She manages to do all this in a way where there is never any hint that this is not completely her choice, something that she is, you know, very good at and revels in the fact that she's very good at it. But at no point is it 
sort of implied that she has a, a good deal here, that, that it is actually in her favour to be this uh, this piece of, of delightful looking. And I have to say, I mean, she is absolutely gorgeous. She's stunning. There is no deny- no getting around that fact. But that is not, to me anyway, that's not put across as, you know, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to be Emma Frost and to be in this position where you have all these men at your feet? No, because Sebastian Shaw, who is the main person who is benefiting from her, her capabilities, her, her telepathic skills, that's her greatest asset, not her looks, and he doesn't appreciate any of that. He's sending her out to get ice. He's getting her to entertain people. He's, you know, he, he's utterly disregarding the things about her that could be most in his favour to use because he's an idiot when that comes down to it and he's obviously thinking with a portion of his brain that does not consider that somebody who looks like that could be capable of doing anything other than being an interesting diversion. Slight amendment to something I said earlier. It's not Jennifer Hale. It was Carrie Walgren who played Emma Frost in Wolverine and the X-Men. She played Amora in Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Uh, Enchantress, that is. Yeah. Ah, right. Yes, that's probably it then, because I I would have looked that up for my um, Enchantress blog. Ah, Carol Ferris in Young Justice. Carol Ferris was played by Jennifer Hale in Green Lantern. Ah, there you go. There's the crossover. (laughs) Two keys to uh, unlocking the White Queen. Um, One of them is putting her in charge of something she never really wanted to be in charge of. Ergo, it put her in charge of kids. Uh, When she was the teacher in Generation X, she seemed to be a little bit uneasy in her role and in uh, the X-Men books where she is, uh, again, given that role, uh, she's being asked to nurture. And remember, she, ha- she had a lot of kids under her tutelage and protection uh, in the Hellfire Club, the Hellions, and they all died. And so that that's something that she pretends doesn't really bother her, and it does. That's how you bring out Emma. You force her to show that she might start caring about someone other than herself. The other one, in The Astonishing X-Men and Wolverine and the X-Men, she gets into a relationship with Scott just after Jean apparently dies, which puts a lot of tension on their relationship and leaves her with this impossible image to live up to. Uh, A woman who, by all rights to Emma, should be just a plain Jane, but is this atom bomb of ability and power, and you can't really compete with a corpse. You're absolutely right there. If you look at the way Emma carries herself as a character, um, she's brilliant and in an incredibly powerful telepath. I mean, there are hints in this... Uh, certainly early on that she may potentially even be more uh, powerful than Charles. Mm. Although I think that kind of gets blasted out of the water as the film progresses. Um, But um, if you put her in a position where she can't fall back on the things that she is effortlessly superb at and really make her have to try at something, that's when you get the best out of her character-wise. Yeah, and it's a damn shame that they don't seem particularly interested in pursuing that. Oh, well, at least we've got her once. One other thing that I really like about this uh, this scene where the, she and, and her relationship with Shaw um, and the other uh, mutants that he has under his thrall, as it were, um, is the this is the first real... I think this is the first time they refer to them as the children of the atom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were uh, because the 60s was all about being under the shadow of the mushroom cloud, they got to go back to one of the earlier X-Men story bylines, which is that the mutants came about because of the atomic age and not because of a natural evolution. It's almost 
contradictory, although it can be incorporated, with the idea that the human genome is simply evolving. Which, again, once you start bringing in apocalypse and people of that nature... Older mutants. Yeah, yeah that, that kind of undermines that idea. Not but, necessarily. Um, there could be aberrations, but this is the, the fact that there's a vast proliferation from the, uh, say, the 50s onwards, when the atomic power released from the 1940s atomic events led to a huge amount of mutant births. It's definitely been in the X-Men mythos. Mm, yeah. And it certainly makes much more sense when you start to look at the idea that there are many more mutants whose um, mutations are... Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. That <laughs> <laughs> um, there are many more individuals in this world whose mutations are uh, a hazard or um, a liability to them rather than a, a power that can be used as a benefit. Only works really in period pieces, though, because atomic energy is is now uh, kind of a, a, a filthy older brother to um, fission and other um, energy sources that we're looking into. It's it's so twentieth century. They worked as the children of the atom when the comic was released in 1963. In 2000, when it had been 56 years since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, sorry, 55 years Hiroshima's bombing was 1945. Considerably less relevant. There is a lot here that really emphasises the, the period nature of, of this film. Um, it does have a very 60s feel to it. Even if it's not a perfect replication of what the 60s looked like, you have this in the, in the stages and the sets as well as in the costumes. You've got all these big blocks of colour um, and it, everybody looks like they were dressed by Mary Quant. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it works very well to give you that that feel of of where you are in history, almost as much as the um, uh, the grounding it in real sixties events does. Good evening, my name's Sebastian Shaw, and I am not here to hurt you, friends. There's a revolution coming when mankind discovers who we are, what we can do. Each of us will face a choice: the enslaved rise up to rule choose freely but know that if you are not with us then by definition you are against us so you can stay fight for the people who hate and fear you or you can join me and live like kings and queens Sebastian Shaw uh, described as a hero of his own story by uh, Matthew Vaughan. The idea being that he had to feel totally righteous in what he was doing. He's not religiously dedicated to his quest in the way that the Reverend William Stryker is in God Loves, Man Kills. And He's not a Bond villain. Uh, he's more of a Bond villain than, uh, than other ones have been in the past. He's... Magneto in X-Men 2 is Hugo Drax in Moonraker, willing to wipe out most of the world and retain a very small percentage of him. That, that's how insane Magneto is in 2. In this, he's willing to uh, get a nuclear war to occur, so that uh, his crackpot theory is that mutants will somehow survive an atomic war, or the idea that that will create more mutants. He is a Bond villain. He's he's a he's a nutbag. He may not necessarily be a '60s Bond villain because those were all humorless assholes. <laughs> he, he's more like, say, Christopher Walken in View to a Kill. 
If they were trying, if he was trying to get them to fire a nuclear warhead at him so that he could absorb its energy and then go out and blow up all his enemies. Now that makes him more of a, a, a Superman villain. All right. Okay. But anyway, uh, he's not a, a crazy religious zealot. He's also not a sneering skeletal type. As far as he's concerned, he's justified in doing what he's doing. However, it is a cartoonishly James Bond-style plan, and it's crazy. There was one thing I noticed when he was standing on the cabotine of the yacht. When Eric corners him, he has the American flag fluttering behind him, and it's, it's not really focused on. Now he's American. Before, when he was working with the Nazis, he was, uh, uh, you know, masquerading as a German man, speaking German, dressed like a Nazi of his age, adopting the flag because it suited his means. Now he's American, doing business with uh, uh, other Americans in Las Vegas. He's got an American flag. He uses flags as a mask to grease the wheels, just to keep things moving. He has no allegiances but his own. Kevin Bacon does a... remarkably good job of demonstrating what Magneto is going to become. Yeah, a, a lot of the um, the certainty with uh, what with which he proceeds passes on to Eric. Absolutely, and one of the things that um, uh, that Fassbender said in the uh, documentary was that they they told him explicitly not to just do a young Ian McKellen because it it wasn't that simple. But you could almost see Kevin Bacon doing Ian McKellen, albeit a much more um, uh, bold and boisterous version. But in the uh, the total conviction that what he's doing is not only right, but will succeed. The idea that he will use and twist anything to get what he wants. As you say, being able to see how that parallels down to young Eric and then back up again to old Eric um, is an interesting pattern to look at. And I use interesting in its appropriate context there. Indeed. Sebastian Shaw has always been uh, an incredibly smug character. The Hellfire Club in the comics has always struck me as a bunch of dandies. If uh, a fight broke out with the X-Men and these guys, there wouldn't be a single one of them left standing. Right. I always interpreted the Hellfire Club as basically the Masons. Yeah. That there was this sort of secret mutant inner circle that had secret handshakes and wore very inappropriate trouser wear for the 20th century. Yeah, they're, they're dressed sort of in the British the Regency period, sort of wandering around with uh, frilly sleeves and uh, stockings and and buckled shoes. And basically, if you look at how Emma Frost in the 80s Hellfire Club dressed as the White Queen, and how in the the, uh, segment of the Dark Phoenix saga where Jean became the Black Queen, she dressed very similarly, they seem to have this rule that if you're a woman, you can come in provided you're wearing a corset and knickers. We want to see your tits, fine. Exactly. So, you know, it's kind of... Shouldn't they be wearing, like, Marie Antoinette gear? Exactly. People wore, women wore full clothes in those days. They didn't run around in, in, you know, skimpy outfits all the time. I'm sure they did sometimes. I would say it's like, well, this was the 60s. It was the year of the the thin white duke. But this was the 80s. The Dark Phoenix saga was like 1980. It was like the month I was born. Yeah, but new romantics. Oh, 
Yeah, it's Chris Claremont. He, he was, he is crazy. So anyway, yeah, they actually, they ease back on this. You know, in, in comparison, Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw are the picture of self-restraint in comparison to what the actual naughty Hellfire Club resembled in the comics. Cut, thank the Lord, to Eric Lenscher, Nazi hunter. He totally bonds it up in this scene. There is a bit in Layer Cake where Daniel Craig's character, X, gets hold of a silenced pistol uh, that Colm Meany gives him for self-defense and then pokes it out towards the camera and sneaks around the apartment, bonding it up. And it's, it's like a casting call for Bond. And it worked. Frankly, if Fassbender isn't the next Bond because of this, I'll be very surprised. And even if he's not... He kind of got the chance to be him anyway here. Frankly, Magneto is much more of an interesting character, especially the way he plays him, than Bond. And when Casino Royale was first announced, I thought, are they going to go back to, like, the 60s and do, like, a period Bond? Because they haven't done that. And that would make it really... That would be fascinating to watch that with modern-day sensibilities. And they kind of do that here. I could have watched an entire movie of this. If if uh, the uh, Magneto movie had been Eric doing this... So in the bank, uh, we note that the banker he's talking to uh, is quite happy to accept Nazi gold, uh, provided that it's um, done all above board and he was recommended by a friend, which makes it okay for Eric to torture him horribly. He becomes an anti-hero here immediately. Uh, what he's doing is uh, is horrible and it's torture, but look who he's doing it to, so that's sort of okay. It's a very guilty pleasure. I don't know if that's quite how I'd frame it, although I know exactly what you mean. And I think it, it all it is ties in... Fuck that. Okay. <laughs> I would have ripped his tooth out and then sent it flying through his head. Fair enough. Um, but I, I think it all ties in with this idea that at the end of this film, you should find it very difficult to make a choice of which side you would stand with. He does some horrible things. He... Murders. Murders. Repeatedly. He behaves appallingly to people. He becomes so fixated on his goal and he becomes so, um, he gets into almost this, almost this state of tunnel vision about it, wherein he does not care or doesn't notice who he's hurting in the process. And that's fine. That's okay. Because you get to see how he got to that point what happened to him to get him to that stage, the phases that he went through to morph from a, a, you know, a very, very frightened child um, into this person who wants revenge above all things. Um, and even his, his goal of, of mutant domination seems to be an extension of, basically, I was oppressed. I was under the boot. I was under the heel. That will never happen again and if i have to make it so that i am the heel i am the one standing at the top of the world literally crushing everybody else then i will do that but this will never happen again i will never be that crushed again and that is completely understandable there are there are no ifs there are no buts i am usually a very um pacifist person in terms of ideology when uh people are becoming 
extremely aggressive in order to further their ends when people are uh, uh, protesting about things which they have an absolute right to be upset about and it turns to violence and they start to become aggressive that's the point at which I usually start to draw away and say you know I, I totally agree with your point but this violence is not going to get you anywhere there is no but with Magneto in the way he is put across in this it's fine I understand utterly why he is the way he is principally because of the extremely good writing and Fassbender himself who is nothing short of magnetic absolutely he is he's astounding my favorite favorite shot of him in this whole thing is just after he's turned the satellite dish yeah. and again it's like it's like with raven when she realizes that charles is not recoiling from her it's pure joy pure satisfaction and thrill in realizing what he's capable of and and that's again one of the reasons why it's so heartbreaking to see what he then turns that ability to is this is what i can do and he he can't continue down that path if it means compromising what he must do yeah rejects that ultimately that that gift that charles gave him of unlocking that memory that gave him the ability to do that he rejects it he decides that hate and anger is a more reliable way to access his power doesn't say hate anger and pain sorry anger and pain and he again is so determined that he will never be crushed again he will not rely on happiness and serenity because he can't trust them. The scene in Argentina uh, in the inside the bar is it's just a few minutes long and it is perfectly framed, perfectly paced, principally because of the music which slowly gathers from this sort of uh, threatening but at the same time compelling guitar strumming. Every shot of it is absolutely fantastic. Deutsches Bier. Claro. Ja, ist Pitburger. Schmeckt gut, ne? Das Beste. Was hat sie nach Argentinien verschlagen? Ach, das Klima. Ich bin Schweinebauer. Ich bin Schneider. Schon seit meiner Kindheit. Mein Vater die schönsten Anzüge Düsseldorfs gemacht. Meine Eltern kamen aus Düsseldorf. Ach, ja. Und wie ist der Name? Sie hatten keinen Namen. Ihr Name wurde ihnen weggenommen. Schweinebauern und Schneider. 
One of the things about Magneto that uh, seems unusual for a villain is that he needs to be fed. He needs to be given something to then fire it back at uh, his attackers. He needs to be attacked first. Sebastian Shaw has this as well. Shaw doesn't go around with vast reserves of energy. People tend to attack him and then he calmly sends it back in that direction. Magneto is exactly the same. He has no weapons when he goes in there. The Schweinbaba attacks him with a knife. He simply redirects the knife in uh, two directions. Uh, The barman pulls out a luger very specifically associated with Nazis. He uses that gun to shoot the tailor, then uses the knife to dispatch the bartender. At the end, he has no ability to destroy the fleet on his own. They fire the missiles at him to allow him to destroy them. They give him the ammunition. They fuel his pain and anger. Let's just say I'm Frankenstein's monster. What was once defensive has become reflective. It's uh, a defense reaction to a world that has kicked and kicked and kicked, and he kicks back with ten times the vigor. I'm looking for my creator. But because we've seen his journey, as you say... It's understandable. It's horrible. It's shocking. It's heartbreaking. But it's understandable. And I think one of the things that makes that end scene um, with the, the missiles, one of the things that sells it so well is uh, when you look at James McAvoy's face, when he realises that Eric was right. Not that Eric was completely right, Not that Eric will always be right, but just that in that moment, he was right and Charles was wrong. That his trust was misplaced. Mm -hmm. There are many uh, losses at that point for Charles and for Eric. It's a wonderful scene. Um, Flaws in Eric include the fact that he's so furious all the time, the fact that he's so aggressive all the time, the fact that he's so impulsive all the time. He's also frightened. There's two... Three specific moments that I can think of where an adult Eric is frightened. One is where he's trying to uh, turn the dish around and he's frightened of the uh, uh, intensity of what he's feeling. Another is uh, when he starts to choke Emma Frost in her diamond form. I was shifting uneasily in my seat at the time because obviously he's torturing uh, a a woman, uh, effectively a defenseless woman at that point. But a little flash goes across Fassbender's face where he sees what he's doing to her and doesn't stop. And that's frightening. It's frightening to him, it's frightening to us. And at the end, when he confronts Shaw, and Shaw turns out to be untouchable despite the incredible power that uh, Eric has exhibited, it is a child going up against his twisted, evil father and still completely in awe of his abilities. Eric's throwing everything he's got at the guy, and the guy is not flinching. And so he is reduced to a frightened, angry child. It's interesting, actually, that you, you evoke the, the father image there, because if the, the idea is that the, uh, the mutants are children of the atom, at that precise point in the film, Shaw has demonstrated his ability to absorb nuclear power to control it, not to be affected and further mutated by it. 
Eric himself makes the comparison uh, between Frankenstein's monster and himself. Uh, the monster killed his creator, which of course goes back to a, a, um, a lot of specifically Greek mythology. And of course there's a parallel with uh, killing your own father. There is a parallel with killing your own god as well. There's also the element of uh, the fact that Frankenstein's monster was a representation of a golem and a golem originally comes from Jewish mythology. I do think they could have been a little bit more subtle with that scene. What, you mean the, the one in Argentina? Yeah, where he announces that he is Frankenstein's monster. No, I don't know. It's a nice uh, uh, parallel with um, Jack- Jekyll and Hyde, who uh, Henry McCoy gets compared to. And Wolverine. And the Incredible Hulk. And the Thing. The Lizard. Man Bat. Solomon Grundy. Iron Man. Ant-Man. Casanova Frankenstein. Okay, not that last one. There are plenty of things this movie is subtle with. Mm, Remember its audience as well. Yeah, no, that is is very true. And there's obviously certain things that they don't want the audience to miss. Mm. And that's that's absolutely fair enough. Besides which, his delivery on that moment is incredible. Oh, it is, isn't it? Oh, Oh, it's funny actually. When I when I commented about the fact that there were so many sexy women in this film, and you mentioned that it's it's kind of balanced by the fact that there are sexy men in the film as well, it's not because it, it's in a completely different way. However, my thought immediately went to Michael Fassbender in that white suit and shirt, and I just thought, yeah, actually, yeah, that's all right. And James McAvoy, slimy though he is, he is a dish. He he is very cute, but he is not. <sighs> in the way that Fassbender is. <laughs> Sorry, how do you spell that? <laughs> there, there is no word for that. It's a shame that this is not a video podcast because you could just splice in that frame of Homer drooling over the gummy Venus. Um, and that's, that's all we need. I sound like I'm doing uh, McKellen a dreadful disservice by rating uh, Fassbender so well, but I, I, I am and have been since the beginning hugely frustrated that McKellen was given nothing to do as Magneto. I still believe he could have done something incredible with that character, given the right shades of grey, given the right lines, given the right uh, conflict. That's the thing about Eric in this. He's conflicted. In the X-Men films prior to this, Magneto isn't really all that conflicted at all. He's on his quest. He's going to do what he has to do. McKellen's Magneto may not be incredible, but it is astounding what McKellen manages to get out of the paltry amount that they give him to work with. Granted, actually, with, with the uh, the uh, lackluster direction from Brian Singer, whom Mark Kermode referred to as a modern-day auteur. You're out of your mind, Mr. Kermode, Dr. Kermode. On auteur, it means that you can look at a single frame of any of his films and you can say, that is the work of so-and-so. Well, that's certainly not true so about Ryan Singer. Tarantino, then, basically. Yeah. Tim Del- Burton. Yeah, Johnny Depp in it. <laughs> yeah. So on to Henry McCoy, who we mentioned just before. Played by Nicholas Holt, who uh, I've heard a lot of people sort of say, oh, he's waiting for his uh, right movie. I thought he was excellent in this. I thought he was excellent in um, uh, About a Boy. I thought he was excellent in Warm Bodies. What else has he been in? Skins, apparently. Yeah. Ha! He was in Jack the Giant Slayer. (laughs) 
Uh, we were presented with uh, the uh, Hank McCoy that we've always seen in the cartoons and the comics, um, the, the, the Kelsey Grammer one in uh, X-Men 3. He delivered exactly what we were expecting. It was kind of a boring turn. There was nothing much for him to really work with. He was pleasant to see on screen, and he didn't really screw up the role. Uh, he was well cast. However, to actually get to the core of Hank, you need to get to the self-loathing of Hank. It starts off with his distaste for his feet. There is a point where he... Uh, speaks of Raven and says you could be normal and there's this whole war of, between normality and perfection batting around in there as it turns out McCoy is a very arrogant young man while he might seem quiet and self-effacing has a fairly high opinion of his intellect and his work and his abilities it's just this one thing about him that he considers to be an imperfection his goddamn feet that he hides and keeps under wraps and if he could get rid of that, then he will be the complete package, which is something he needs to grow out of. And uh, unfortunately, it requires a very painful transformation to force him to confront a side of himself that is never going to be perfect. I, I promised myself I'd find a cure. You have no idea what I'd give to feel normal. Yeah. Hank, this serum that you're making, it doesn't affect abilities, right? Just appearance. Yeah. Do you think it would work on me? Yeah, I, I can look into it if you'd like. I mean, it's the least I can do after asking you to come down here with such a weird request. <laughs> well, I have to admit, usually when guys ask me out, they're not after my blood. Uh, sorry, I, I didn't intend to be forward. I was just I was excited. Go ahead. One of the things that impressed me about the way Holt played McCoy is that I'm used to him being, as you say, the Kelsey Grammer uh, style of beast, yeah. big and blue and fluffy. Um, and also, oh, my stars and garters. Absolutely. But also somebody who has very obviously come to terms with himself. Although there is still this sad awareness of how people see him as different as alien um even though he really isn't seeing him as this young man who is still working on that who who still you know you can see how he would eventually become that man but he's not there yet and um again hank in this he's he's a great example and charles is another one of this idea of um of how the, the, the patriarchal structure that's in place is actually even not very good for the people that it apparently is supporting. Yeah. In Charles's case, it's that it's given him this, basically the opportunity to avoid having to understand anybody else until he's in his mid to late twenties. Um, in Hank's case, it's, uh, I mean, he is working for the CIA, which we've already said is, is representative of this, uh, this structure and this system. And he is smart. And he is creative and he is uh, apparently all of the things that they would think are, are wonderful and that they would reward and they would support. But there is this one thing about him which he keeps hidden. And you made this uh, a comment that I, it had honestly not occurred to me before, but it makes perfect sense. And everything just kind of slotted when uh, Charles outs him. Mm. He is the parallel in this of being gay and hiding it. He's Alan Turing. Yeah. 
Not bad. I mean, they do kind of sweep that whole side of things under the carpet when it becomes obvious that he's attracted to Raven. But in terms of uh, his... Well, no, it's just a metaphor for homosexuality. Of course. Well, no, I know. That's that's what I mean. But, but in terms of his persona, what is the... He's hiding a filthy and socially unacceptable secret. And the accusation, which is most likely to be levelled at intelligent, quiet, thoughtful young men at school. By people like Havoc, who spends most of the time they're on screen together haranguing poor Hank. Absolutely. And making the situation worse and yeah. adding to his neurosis. And making like, him feel terrible. fucks like you, Alex, mm. <laughs> that people like this go crazy. But as you say, because he is so arrogant, because he is so full of himself, because basically he has balanced all of that, or at least in his mind it's a balance. It's not really a balance at all. It's a further fucking up. Um, but because he's balanced all of that with, with having to be confident in himself and his own abilities, it's created this bizarre tension. And it's not, it's not really bizarre because it exists in so many people. You can see it in the screamy boys on the internet. The ones who shout at people for not being geeky enough and shout at people about not being geeky about the right things. And shout and at girls who pretend to be geeky but aren't geeky enough. Absolutely. Really. And, and completely missing the fact that you know, these, these people that you're yelling at because they're, you see them as different to you and, and as something that you need to be set against the same way as all of those bullies who ripped the shit out of you when you're at school. These people are your allies in that fight. Quit yelling at them. <laughs> you know, stop, stop joining in the bullies putting them down. What does that achieve? Who does that help? All that leaves you is stuck in the middle, angry as fuck, and achieving sweet Fanny Adams. <laughs> but that's again, again, there are there are many different levels of this same story of oppression and and uh, attack and fighting back, or for or turning your hatred inwards, which is what Hank does. He turns it in on himself. He hates himself. He hates himself because his feet are the wrong shape. I mean, for goodness sake, everything else about him is absolutely fine. And even that is absolutely fine. It Look at what he can do with them. And, and it, it really made me kind of wince when he was talking about this, um, this serum to, to alter uh, mutations. And he kept coming back to it just changes appearance. It doesn't affect your abilities. It just changes your appearance. Hank, if it changes the shape of your feet, it's going to change your abilities. You aren't going to be able to hang off a plane wing with them anymore. And, and Raven's ability <coughs> is all is about her appearance. If he changes that, if he makes it so that she looks like Jennifer Lawrence 24-7 without having to concentrate, he's basically going to take away the thing that makes her able to do the things that she does and he doesn't even see that he doesn't even grasp that concept concept because for him the appearance is so key to everything and he doesn't understand that it's utterly utterly irrelevant but again like charles he's on the road and by the time we get to see him in x-men 3 he will have accepted that mostly although interestingly there's that little bit where he his hand starts to go uh caucasian when he's near uh leech and uh a little flash crosses his face joss whedon wrote hank fascinatingly self-loathing but he kept it hidden and covered up 
part of what Hank's anxieties are in Astonishing X-Men is that he's becoming more feral and cat-like and, and wild and his hands are now paws and he's finding it more and more difficult to perform his tasks and to do his work because his mutation is uh, increasing and, and he, he can't think as well that scares him he, he feels like the man is slipping away in, in favour yeah. of the beast it's definitely a Jekyll and Hyde thing going on and once again Joss Whedon just getting to the heart of the characters this is, if you recall, the very same Joss Whedon whose script for the original X-Men film was rejected because it was too funny. Hank, these are the special new recruits I was telling you about. This is Hank McCoy. How wonderful. Another mutant already here. Why didn't you say Say what? Because you don't know. I am so, so terribly sorry. Hank? You didn't ask, so I didn't tell. So your mutation is what? You're super smart? I'll say. Hank here graduated Harvard at the age of 15. Uh, I wish that's all it was. You're among friends now, Hank. You can show off. Sorry. You, you, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're amazing. Really? So then cut to Cerebro. The uh, I didn't mention Oliver Platt. He's not anywhere on here. What a thankless task. I was in that movie. And then like you come out of this movie and you're either reeling from it and going, yeah, that was good, wasn't it? No one's saying, but Oliver Platt was awesome. <laughs> but yeah, he was in it as uh, as that agent who gets um, who helps out Charles and gets him all those connections and all that technology. And they get summarily dropped a great distance by Azazel. So yeah, the Cerebro trip, and, and uh, when Charles puts on his special calendar on his head and uh, goes flying around the world to the mutants, and he sees young Storm! No, he doesn't, because that makes Halle Berry 50 in X-Men. <laughs> so that's Storm's mum, folks, uh, if she's anyone. And he also sees a boy with like a baseball glove and sunglasses who could be Scott, but probably isn't, because let's face it, Alex is Scott's dad. The age matches up. Normally is his brother, but he can't be his brother in this unless his brother is 20 years younger than him. And he's supposed to be his younger brother if he's his brother, so that still doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah, he's his dad. That's why he's Alex Summers. Don't know where that leaves Corsair. Uh, is it Jonathan Summers? I was wondering about that, yeah. Do you think they're going to go uh, in, into space with the oh, no, Star Jammers uh, and the Phoenix Force? It's Christopher Summers. Christopher Summers. Major Christopher Summers. Yeah, it's Corsair. Christopher Summers. Do, do you think they're going to go into space? They're going to do no. a Guardians of the Galaxy? Shi'ar no. Empire? No? No. You, you think they're going to do the Phoenix Force again? Properly? Uh, I doubt it. You don't think so? No. You don't think, you don't think Chode will make an appearance? Chode. <laughs> what if... <laughs> his name's Chode. Mm. What if... <laughs> <laughs> do you know what this franchise really needs? A giant fish. He's, he's not a fish, he's a chode. <laughs> he looks a bit like a fish. And then there's that cat woman who is of Mephistoid parentage. The one if, who looks like Felicia. If Guardians of the Galaxy does really well, expect the Star Jammers at some point. <laughs> More of that uh, Chris Claremont bullshit. Or maybe they'll just they'll go into space, they'll meet the Shi'ar Empire, you'll meet Lalandra and Deathbird... But not the Phoenix Force. 
but why? Like, that's that's why would you bother? Because she, she already exists in continuity. She was a, a, a splinter of Jean Grey's psyche. No, no, no. I mean, why would you bother with Lalandra if you're not going to do the Phoenix Saga again? I don't know. Why would you bother with the Danger Room if you're not going to really do Sentinels? Good point. Well made. Let's move on. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, then the recruitment drive, uh, and it cuts to a wonderful bit of music by um, uh, Niles Barkley. We get to meet Angel, Darwin, Havoc, Banshee, and Logan. Now, uh, there was a Penny Arcade strip where uh, they pointed out that these are some lame-ass X-Men that feel like leftovers. And while I am affronted by it, and while it also seems to be blissfully unaware of the importance of the characters of Banshee and Havoc, uh, gotta admit that uh, with Cyclops dead, with Jean dead... And with Wolverine not appearing in this film, and with Storm nowhere near, and with no Colossus, no Nightcrawler, they really were somewhat restricted by who could be the first class. It is somewhat underwhelming, considering that the actual first class included Angel, who hasn't been done properly ever, his brief appearance in X-Men 3, and the character of Angel here, who isn't Angel... Uh, you got Iceman, who we had plenty of his non-threatening Corey-ness in the first three X-Men movies, so I suppose we've had enough Iceman. You got Cyclops, has been made abundantly clear they don't know what to do with him. Gene, ditto. And Beast, who at least gets a decent run of it in this, literally. But instead, you got these guys, one of whom doesn't even make it to class. That doesn't mean that they're actually lame, but to your layman, it does seem like the leftovers. To be honest with you, though, I really liked that. I liked the fact that Angel and Darwin's powers particularly were less explosive and less visual, but but had some obvious purpose and, and something that would be useful, but possibly in a smaller way. Darwin's particularly. I mean, it, that is a um, the culmination of what mutation is supposed to be about. Mm. The idea of adapt to survive. He is literally a one-man human race in his ability to adapt to whatever circumstance he's put in. The character of Angel is actually Angel Salvador from the uh, Grant Morrison New X-Men 2001 series. Do you remember her? No. No, she was uh, ugly, grumpy, frumpy, conducted a, a uh, relationship with a character named Beak, who was this weird, twisted vulture creature thing, uh, was very angry and aggressive, and yeah, she spat oh acid. Oh my and, god, do you yeah, I do. They had no. weird mutant babies with beaks and things. And, and it 
wasn't the specific thing that the only beautiful thing about her was her wings, or the only thing about her that she felt was beautiful was her wings. Now, I say ugly in terms of the fact that she was empirically so, because everyone in Grant Morrison's X-Men was ugly and horrible, and everything that Grant Morrison wrote from the X-Men was an ugly, horrible twisting of uh, the the X-Men mythos. There were some things that were very interesting, fascinating even, Uh, but there was a moment where Beast holds up a skull in a decimated Genosha that's just been torn apart and had thousands of mutants died in a sentinel attack. And he quotes Shakespeare in a kind of trying to make people laugh. And it appalled me that Morrison would take a character like that and have him make a joke during the worst of circumstances. And I was very gratified to read uh, Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men later, have Hank remember that and feel ashamed of himself. Because I think Whedon probably read the same thing. I went, what the fuck are you playing at, Grant Morrison? Face palm. When you say quoted Shakespeare, do you mean made a Hamlet joke? Something along those lines. So anyway, yeah, uh, what what I was pointing out was that they have definitely sexied up the character of Angel Salvador here. And uh, in fact, her name is Tempest in later X-Men comics, and she's distinctly more attractive. Which does kind of emphasize this idea that they kind of felt on some level they can't put women in this unless they are overtly sexy i mean she's a stripper you don't get much more overtly using your body to please the men around you than that sexy Um, sexy sexy now i get what grant morrison was doing let me just finish off this one he was saying look we've spent four decades now having sexy nubile mutants doing their sexy nubile twilight thing and now let's show you that being a mutant might not actually be all that sexy in fact sometimes it's quite horrible Ah, fair enough okay take the sexy out of it that's fine but most of the characters he writes are selfish as fuck and loathsome so they don't have to be attractive but they're also they also don't have to be bastards and he's not exactly trailblazing on that front I mean the Morlocks exist yeah Anyway, let's not let's get off Grant Morrison's case because he is uh, one of the most respected writers in the business. Uh, but yeah, Angel Salvador uh, here is the stripper with her oddball powers, and the I think they, they kind of honed in on the fact that um, when she spits, it's not sexy. It's actually quite horrible. It is a bit grim. She's flobbing it, acid fire. She is. That's that's not a pleasant thing. Um, there are but, parallels um, with being, her being an insect as well. Indeed. But, I mean, one of the things that, that did strike me about this uh, little recruitment... Oh, yeah, she lays eggs in the book. I forgot about that. Does she? Oh, yeah. my God. Well, mind you, if she's, you know, partnered with somebody called Beak, one presumes he has some bird element to him. Yeah, but she has lava. So that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a bit grim, but it does kind of make sense. Um, but yeah, um, I, I liked the fact that it's this little recruitment section looking at mutants on a somewhat lower social strata, shall we say, uh-huh. than, than we have been exposed to so Which far. Which technically was what Morrison was going for. I don't just mean social in terms of mutant pecking order. Angel is a stripper. Darwin is a cab driver. Yeah. Uh, Havoc, Havoc is a is prison. Yeah. A federal um, prison. Sean, possibly a student. He certainly doesn't seem to be... He may go to Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> did mention possibly. that he looks like Ron Weasley and Seamus Finnegan had a butt baby. Absolutely. But yeah, basically, these are the working class mutants, which so far there have been alarmingly few of. 
working class movements. Sorry, did I say that too posh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we sound you like such know what I right mean. Now. Oh god, I was raised in the north as well. I have no idea how my voice has ended up quite as plummy as it has. Um, but yeah, Charles. Is... Let me just ch- change the thing where I said, "Is butt baby okay?" <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. On no, is that not okay? <laughs> no, I don't think so. It does look like Ron Weasley and Seamus Finnegan had a baby. And it was Banshee. If you look at the... And again, if we're, if we're looking at this in terms of, of mutants being representative of the, the people who are stepped on by this sort of system that's in place, represented by the, the humans, um, and using them as, a, as sort of a parallel for minority communities, there's not much in the way of ethnic minorities in this film. But you do have Angel and Darwin who are the first to step forward in the scene when uh, Shaw comes to collect them from the CIA building. Angel being the first to come forward to join him, um, which, although we kind of know she's making the wrong decision, that is a very brave thing to do. Um, and and she's she's in a very difficult position because she's effectively been rescued from being a stripper by Charles and Eric. He even says, would you like a job where you get to keep your clothes on? Yeah. Which shows a lot of snidiness and slight patronising tone against a job which a lot of women do and many of them enjoy and quite like the fact that it means that they have a job. Hang on, are you saying that uh, Sebastian Shaw isn't the nicest of cats? Yes. He's about to wipe out the world. Well, exactly. Being snooty about strippers is the least of his issues. No, no, I know. That's, that's, sorry, that's not my point. I, I wavered a little bit there. You're the one who um, said working class students. Oh, yeah, and I hold that against me now, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, totally. Damn. You posh bird. My voice gets me into trouble sometimes. <laughs> um, See, now you've distracted me and I've forgotten what I was talking about. Yeah, so uh, so basically Angel is the first person to, to sort of say, well, we we need to find a way to stand up for ourselves. You know, she's she's gone, as far as she can see, from one system where she's at the bottom of the pile to another system where she's at the bottom of the pile. And here she doesn't even have any control over, over it, at least when she's – she says, at least when she's stripping. She has some say about how the men look at her, how long they get to look at her for, and when she puts her clothes on – and says right that's it it's over it's done and they have to stop the the <laughs> the apparent adult cia agents who are basically behaving like the jocks in the nerds movies yeah. um, did you notice by the way the curtain is on the outside of that room so if it yeah, rains the curtain gets about? wet unless the only other thing i could think of was that it's two panes of it's glass with the curtains in between but it it's isn't not. is it nope. no no and if that was the case, you'd see the curtains when Alex smashes the window. And also the jocks would just be able to lift the curtains up and go, you can shut the curtains, but we're the ones outside. We can just rip them off. Absolutely. Um, but yes, yeah, so so being in that situation where she, she so far has had no evidence that this is really that much better for her than where she was before, now there's a third option. So she is at least, you know, she's being bold enough to stand up and, and go, all right, let's give this option a try and see if that's any better. Then Darwin.
whirlwind. Do you think the- it will be better, by the way? Do you think she gets, like, precedence over the mute guy with the whirlwinds? Hmm. I doubt it very, very much. Um, Is there a ladder she can climb? Do I, I, you know, I never even thought about it. Go from does, lucky to minion. Which, yeah, one, which does, way does it go? <laughs> does Shaw have a very distinct career progression? Is there a spinal point that she can climb her way up on here? Emma Frost turns around and goes, you know what, play your cards right. Could be you. In the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really want that hot seat after Emma Frost has sat in it? What am I asking? Evil Let's mutant middle management. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. They have courses. So I'm assistant evil overlord. Assistant to the evil overlord. And then Darwin is the first person who steps up to protect her. And there's this great shot where you've got Darwin moving to cover Angel with his body. And then it cuts back to this group of rather lost looking white kids shuffling from foot to foot, not quite able to decide what to do next. Mm. Excuse me, I'm Eric Lentra. Charles Xavier. Go fuck yourself. Now, Matt Weta has said uh, on the uh, forum, personally, one of the reasons X-Men First Class is easily my favorite X-Men film is because of the lack of Wolverine. X-Men Origins Wolverine wasn't his first solo film. It was just the first one that was honest about it. The other films may as well have been called Wolverine, Wolverine 2, X-Men United, and Wolverine 3, The Last Stand. Enough Wolverine already. Because, of course, it was followed by The Wolverine and Wolverine Days of Future Past. And I understand, uh, he is such a cool character, and uh, Jackman plays him in such a charismatic and watchable and enjoyable way that you can honestly see everyone else, even Stuart and uh, McKellen, getting swamped with how awesome Wolverine is. You'd have thought it would have worn off by, the, say, the third film, but no, he is still the major draw for the series. Now, if you remember in the 90s, comic readers, Wizards comic covers were... If you remember in the 90s, kids, uh, Wizard magazine, which was the comic magazine du jour, um, every other month was a Wolverine cover. He was just the character. I mean, he was the Batman of the 90s. And as gruff. Yeah. And it dark. And it hasn't really abated all that much since then. I think like, possibly simply that um, uh, we've, we've got our Wolverine fix in a cinematic sense, as opposed to the comics, although he's all over the comics still. Well, it's I suppose it's kind of a way of going, see comic book movies not just for kids we have this chap here who cuts fools <laughs> grown up we think so <laughs> that's a mature situation to compare their uh, two budgets uh, X-Men Origins colon Wolverine cost 150 million made 373 million by comparison X-Men First Class cost 140 million so about the same maybe 10 million less uh, and made 353 million. So it's about the same whether Wolverine's in it or not. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're 20 million less from, for the, from the Wolverine speculators, but it's possible also that Origins Wolverine was enough Wolverine for them. Is that the um, metric on which they work out uh, Hugh Jackman's salary? How much the is enough Wolverine? Between, no, 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 the difference between a film with Wolverine in it and a film without Wolverine in it. 20 million. Okay, Hugh, that's what you're getting paid for the next film. Well, The Wolverine cost 120 million. And you think by now people would be like, ugh, enough with Wolverine. 
414 million. Seriously? He's growing in appreciation. And this is a film that barely anyone ever talked about. We're going to review it, but... I was going to say, you could be forgiven for thinking nobody saw that film. Yeah, but no. Very few people said The Wolverine sucks. In fact, pretty much everyone said it's much, much better than the first one. But uh, it did not capture the hearts of the people. Well, the, the problem is that by saying it's much, much better than the first one, that's not saying much. Okay, so it cuts then to the uh, new X-Men messing around with their powers. And this reminds me of that bit in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban when um, Ron... uh, The the presence of Banshee looking like Ron Weasley probably doesn't hurt this when uh, they're um, eating the animal sweets and they Mm. sound like animals messing around. There's something very affable and natural about it. And and one of Matthew Vaughan's greatest abilities is getting natural delivery out of his actors. Stardust struck me at at this as well, specifically if, if they're British actors and actresses um it 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 helps but uh, he can like mcavoy's delivery the whole way through this it all just sounds like things he has just thought of as opposed to reading lines which a lot of the earlier x-men films felt very stiff and and just like people plodding through this leaden dialogue well it's not hurt by the fact that james mcavoy is an absolutely fantastic actor absolutely he really is It, it actually we we need to see this again, but it amuses me to watch that. What's that assassin's wanted? Film that he. Oh, why is he in that film? I don't know. I mean, he's great and everything, but you look at the other stuff he's done: Atonement, Narnia. Why is he in that film? Inside, I'm dancing. That was really good. That was his yeah. debut. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if, folks, if you if you want to see him uh, um, really push himself for a, a, a young actor, uh, it's a, a film about. I think his uh, name it was like called Rory O'Shea was here, or something along those lines in America. Yeah, it, is, it was called Rory O'Shea was here. Uh, it's uh, he he plays a, a wheelchair bound, uh, very charismatic, uh, disabled uh, young man, and um, he meets a, a, a very shy uh, young man. They they um, it's a growth experience for both of them. But yeah, Matt, he was incredible in that. Inside I'm Dancing in the UK. On the most base level possible, he's now got wheelchair experience to bring to future X-Men films. Is that crass to say that? No, no, it's not. Actually, no. He knows how to get into the mindset of somebody frustrated with being stuck in that situation. Yeah, okay. That is relevant. But yeah, I think they use this uh, situation where the kids are messing around with their powers to uh, explain the slight campiness of the extra. Because the, the, really the names and to some degree the costumes don't quite work in a world where they're trying to convey a slightly alternate version of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, but when Raven comes up with, you should be Professor X and you should be Magneto, and the grown-ups are not amused. Mm. But well, that's that's the other purpose of that scene, of course, is that it it makes it clear that they're, they're children. Yeah. I, I'm not entirely certain why Raven's behaving like this. As we've established, she's about the same age as Charles, and irrespective of the fact that she looks very young... She's been wanting to let her hair down for ages. Exactly, and it's, it's, it, it's a bonding experience. Again, this is one of the first times she's been able to be with a group of people yeah. with whom she friends. can just have fun and have friends. Yeah, yeah very understandable. 
So yeah, we don't need to go into massive detail on the assault on the Russian retreat. I've already talked about the uh, the, the really relevant bit of this scenario, which is Eric's fear when he tortures Emma Frost. Um, it's, it's a neat little trick she does with the Russian general. Uh, but again, this is um, kind of Cold War Bond era action sequence where Magneto gets to unleash and it's great fun to watch. And we get to see Shaw's crazy plan. Uh, but She's it's, senior on the top at this point, although yeah, that's impressive. She is, nibbling on a water biscuit, I might add. Yeah, I, you know, I'd have given her like a cream cake or something. The woman is working hard, let her have something more than a cracker. I think that was a subtle implication that she's having to suffer to retain this body, to become, to stay this thin and to be this yeah, physically desirable. So she's not having actually much fun with that. So maybe it's uh, a little uh, reflection onto the fact that while she's doing what she's doing, she's not really getting much out of it. If she was munching on a cream cake, you'd be like, dude, I've got to join her evil band. <laughs> you get to basically fuck with people's heads and eat cream cakes. <laughs> Live in the dream, basically. <laughs> and have that body. How is that possible? So, yeah, no, it's water biscuits for you, Emma. <laughs> if I'd coughed that loudly down the microphone, it would have deafened you. Of course. Thank you. So then we get to see Azazel in action. They, they, I suppose they, they never really made it clear that Nightcrawler was um, uh, Mystique's son in X Men Two when it was relevant. But I suppose putting the two of them on the same team in this is kind of a ah ah. Azazel, of course, played by Lucky Rabbit's foot, Jason Fleming. Apparently, uh, whenever they hire him for uh, a film, it does well. When they don't hire him, it doesn't do well. And it's swept away, starring Madonna. So I'm basically, s- they have to have him on set so that Matthew Vaughan can rub his head. <laughs> <laughs> just come around to rub him, Jason Fleming. <laughs> was that it? Was it Guy Ritchie? Directed by Guy Ritchie, yeah, with his, his wife, was in it? Um, yeah, I, I think having uh, Mystique and Azazel ending up on the same team, you, any X-Men fan can kind of go, yeah, Peace two plus two, two yeah. equals four. Yeah. In the same way that the uh, the beginning of X-Men 2 has got that really awesome Nightcrawler sequence, we get to see Azazel doing that and being lethal with it as well. He's actually pretty frightening and very striking, and not speaking much makes him even more scary. But it's not just the not speaking, because the whirlwind guy with the sort of the, the Fabio hair doesn't speak either, and is totally dull to watch. So really it comes down to the fact that they've created this mutant to be um, a, a force of nature and, and uh, a scary foot soldier. But yeah, he's, he's an awesome example of what the X-Men are going to be up against and intimidating with it. He's also, and all of them are really, um, a better grade of evil mutant if you like you know that there is no sort of concept of the 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 brotherhood of smirking mutants it's pretty evident that what they're doing they think that they're doing the right thing i don't know if i'm putting that across correctly but that there isn't that thing that there was from the first films of of we are the bad guys nyek 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 you know turn up in our vampire capes and make your lives miserable um you know they 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 have something to accomplish on their own time and and with their own aims and and motives even if you don't necessarily get to see the ins and outs of them you can see that there are shades of reasons why they're there with the possible exception of riptide who appears to be there for the drinks and the 24-hour hairdressing (laughs) 
yeah. How is it? Yes. In fact, while we're speaking of Emma and water biscuits and maintaining that physique, how is it that Riptide has wind powers? spends most of his time in the centre of tornadoes, and yet the hair is so goddamn perfect. That's his mutant power. The hair! Ah, of course. Yeah, the Brotherhood of Smug Mutants don't uh, don't rear their ugly heads in this one, and uh, I think it's only at the very end when uh, you got Enter Magneto, they're all standing in the doorway, and they're just, they're about to break into the smirking. <laughs> Actually, Emma's the one who's doing the smirking throughout most of this. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that actually, you don't really see it going on because you're not close enough to see any of their faces. But that whole thing about um, they seem a little bit lost when Shaw is dead. Yeah, they're fucked. And Magneto steps in and Eric basically goes, right, OK, clearly this is my gang now. Yeah. Um, they so you three see- following me now? Of course. He's wearing the helmet. Well, exactly, yeah, but they, they do, they seem like aimless children, which again gives you this layer of what would they be doing if they weren't here? What would their lives be like if they hadn't clung on to shore? Yeah. But I mean, we've never really gotten into Azazel's head or whirl, is his name whirlwind? Riptide? Riptide. Riptide's head and Angel is basically going to go with whoever's um, strongest, it would appear from this this point, um, motivated out of fear and feeling like she's going to be outcast no matter what, so she may as well be with a strong person while she's outcast. I think in her case, there is an element of, uh, on a, a much, much more minor level um, than Eric, that basically she's been stepped on, mm. and she wants to bite back. And this is a group that are going to enable her to lash out, rather than trying to convince her to save the people who've been, um, you know putting her down and, and disrespecting her for most of her life. She doesn't really strike me as particularly angry, though. This seems to come out of nowhere. Um, it's more annoyed. She Bitter. 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 She doesn't seem particularly uh, angry in, like, hot anger, but there is a, a cold bitterness under there, mm. um, which, again, it would be too easy to say, well, you know, she's a stripper. Clearly she's had a horrible life, but... It, I don't think it's that simple. Mm. Darwin's sacrifice is actually a a sad and poignant little moment. And uh, he's a forgotten mutant. He's not in the comics. They just basically uh, brought this guy in just to kill him horribly. I suppose he's the equivalent of Thunderbird, the character in Giant Size X-Men number one who was introduced with Storm and Colossus and Wolverine and Nightcrawler and Banshee, who I think in their second outing against Count Nefaria died suddenly. Ooh, yes. And I'll tell you what, you know what I said about Darwin being um, kind of this sort of macrocosm of the mutant race because he has this ability to adapt immediately to any given situation? Mm-hmm. Thunderbird struck me when I read that issue and that, that whole little storyline. You read Giant Size X-Men number two? Yeah. Okay. They, um, at some point in the 80s... They must have reprinted it. They reprinted them, yeah. And the ones I had were old. I'd picked them up at a, <clears throat> a car boot sale somewhere. Yeah, he, he's basically... His powers were kind of a little bit of this character and a little bit of that character. He didn't really have anything that made him completely his own person. He just seemed to be, you know, 
not quite as good a healing factor as Wolverine and not quite as strong as Colossus, um, yeah. as Colossus. And you know what I mean? So he ha- he was kind of a, a reflection of all of them without being as good as any of them. So he was narratively disposable. But then you have this idea that he's a person and even though his powers may not have contributed anything unique, there was still, you know, him as an individual. And he was Native American, which was relatively novel. There's a nice parallel there with uh, Survivor's guilt, though. We must not forget Thunderbird. Mm, Yeah, Mm. yeah. Which, of course, impacted heavily on his brother's uh, character when he came in with the, uh, the New Mutants be Warpath. So, yeah, set in the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think there's a definite moment when uh, history uh, converges at the point where um, Azazel jumps onto the ship and it breaches the borderline. That's where history changed. Uh, because, of course, that didn't happen in real life. Fortunately, um, we didn't end up entering into a nuclear war, which destroyed both America and Russia. But it's a nice way of grounding it and, and giving us a nice alternate history uh, feel to it, something I'm familiar with. Indeed. Also, the uh, War Room map uh, made a point to me that I had never really clicked onto, which is that it's not surprising that Britain felt particularly uh, threatened during the Cold War, because if Russia and America had started launching missiles at each other, guess who would have been caught right in the middle of it? Inescapably so. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, for some strange reason, that has never occurred to me before. Uh, Matthew Vaughan was deliberately trying to evoke Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb with his war room scenes. There's a very uh, prominently displayed, the seating, the lighting. The language as well. Yeah. The fact that they have that incredibly um, definite, if this happens, we will have to go to war. We will have no choice. Well, you will you're just going to choose to go to war. It seemed like the perfectly orchestrated, propitious circumstances to get men under extreme pressure to press the button. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's also nice to see Michael Ironside on the boats. Sam Fisher himself. Yay! Yeah. <clears throat> but before that, we get the training montage uh, with uh, Havoc, Banshee, and Raven all learning to focus. It all seems to be along the same lines. Havoc stops blasting all over the place and just blast forwards. Banshee... Eight, rather than using this to destroy glass, to just focus it and push it forwards. And, and, and it's a, a case of using a mutant power in an unusual way to create a different set of abilities. Also, they are brilliantly representative of this. Uh, this Right. Don't take this the wrong way, um, but young men splurging their energy out all over the place. <laughs> How can I not take that? <laughs> What's the right way to take that? I'm not sure. Um, Yes, all young men need to learn where to splurge that energy. But you you know what I mean. The idea that they have all of this um, uh, ability inside them, but because they don't know how to direct it, because they don't know how it can be used constructively and creatively, um, that they're drifting and they're pretty aimless and in Havoc's case it particularly it's led him down this path of criminality that winds up with him living in solitary confinement yeah. um, and they obviously don't know he's a mutant so he's not in there because he blew up every other building in the prison you know there's clearly some character issues there as well yeah. um, but by the, the way Havoc's power appears to be nuclear powered hula hoops <laughs> yes indeed um, 
but yeah, so the, the idea that they're being trained to, uh, to use that raw force and, and put it somewhere where it's going to do some good. Yeah. Interestingly, though, despite the fact that in the comics, uh, Havoc is very much uh, repressed in the same way as Scott, that he has to wear this containment suit all the time, otherwise he might kill everybody around him. This uh, Alex is much more relaxed and he, he's cocky. He does have that repressed side of him, but he's not just a Scott analog. No. No, he isn't. Apart from anything else, he appears to have elements to his personality that you get the impression there is more about him to learn, mm. more about him to find out. He's not given much to work with, and he comes mm. up as a douche at times, but, indeed. but uh, I wouldn't be sad to see more of him. Yeah, indeed. Whereas with Scott, it's like, gee, no, there is no more. <laughs> we or there, there probably is, but we had no idea how to hint at it. But I've never seen Alex written as well as Scott is written in Astonishing X-Men. More on that later. Well, I've I've only ever seen Havoc written in uh, context of um, Polaris. So in like the old X-Factor mm. comics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I've, he was I've very straight laced in that. As as um, you know, a person on his own, having to get to know people no. and, and interact with them. Well, that was mostly um, the the writing that I read of him in the nineties was very situational, very little that really led to uh, character growth. Very true. It was very like sort of what's the mutant of the week? Let's find them and take them down. Yeah. What is Alex going to explode today? <laughs> yeah. But he was a, a leader, much like his brother. Mm. Again, that uh, havoc. Uh, given the right uh, focus, could be just as good a leader as Scott. Yeah. Although not in this, because he appears to have no ability to handle people. But then again, he's doing what Scott probably should have been uh, doing in his situation. He's the big gun. You keep him in reserve and use him to blow stuff up. You don't get him giving the orders. Absolutely. And occasionally smack him around the head when he says stupid things to people. Yeah. At the end of this, after the um, disturbing uh, attempt at a, a bullet catch from one centimeter, uh, you get Eric's point between rage and serenity, which is uh, you've already mentioned is one of the most emotional and... Um, powerful moments of the uh, film and uh, redeems the character and made me really care about where Eric was going at this point. If he'd just been angry and hostile and aggressive the whole way through from the midpoint onwards, uh, then you, I would have started to think, well, this is just inevitable. But they offer you that chance of redemption. They offer you that chance of salvation for Eric and a way forward that's not just... <clears throat> leading the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants to take over the world. And it harkens back to many storylines in the X-Men where Magneto has not only been an ally, but actually led the X-Men and been a force for great positivity in their lives. And he's not just a dark, dark, lost character. He can achieve good. He just doesn't have the motivation. Question. Yeah. And if I'm completely off the mark with this, you can cut this bit out completely, or you can anyway, because it's, it's a bit spoilerific for something that happens in, um, I think it's Age of Apocalypse, but... Oh, come on, you can spoil a 20-year-old comic. Okay, fair enough. When he, um, he is in a relationship with Rogue. Yeah. Yes, and she becomes pregnant. Mm -hmm. Doesn't, does he, he use his, his powers? He covers field. Yeah, but doesn't he use his powers to insulate the baby so that she won't basically absorb it like or suck something? Her, suck her baby dry. Mm. Um, yes, 
I was, I was just thinking that's that's uh, a kind it's of. It's written by Scott Lobdell. What do you expect? What's the best you, do you think? Well, no, no. I was just, powers. I was just thinking that's kind of ex- an example of what I was saying about his powers being used for defensive purposes, for protective reasons. Yeah, but remember, oh, oh no, Rogue used uh, her magnetic powers because she'd stolen the abilities of Polaris in that universe. Oh, okay, all right. She taught her how to so that they could. Fuck, let's face it. Brilliant. That's one of the brightest points for Magneto. In the uh, X-Men Age of Apocalypse, it's worth re- mentioning here, actually, I suppose. Uh, it was an alternate timeline which persisted for four months, wherein uh, Charles Xavier's son, Legion, went back in time to kill Magneto so that he would never be in the way of Charles forming the X-Men and actually doing some good in the world, and that uh, uh, Legion might know his father and have a chance of um, having a relationship with him inadvertently he killed charles uh accidentally and fucked the entire timeline because charles never formed the x-men in time uh, to oppose apocalypse at the right moment and apocalypse himself takes over the world creating a horrible dark timeline wherein <clears throat> mutants are the dominant species on the planet humans are rounded up into camps and exterminated and this is the storyline that got me into comics and it's weird because reading it, it changes the uh, nature of uh, many of the X-Men uh, and various um, supporting cast of mutants. For example, Scott Cyclops is one of Apocalypse's prelates. He's one of his um, generals. He helps them to round up uh, humans. He does terrible, terrible things, as does Alex. Wolverine is still Wolverine, but uh, um, he is in a, a long-committed relationship with Jean Grey. Sabretooth is a good guy. He's on the X-Men and uh, fulfills the role that Wolverine does, which has always made him a fascinating character for me because if he has it in him to do good things, he has chosen his entire life not to, which has always driven me to give people the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the idea of nature. Beast Hank McCoy is... A thoroughly reprehensible character in this uh, Age of Apocalypse. He experiments on humans and mutants alike. Um, and there's a whole bunch of mutants which occupy a Shades of Grey area. They're looking out for various other interests um, and trying to help various other people. But there isn't quite that flag waving, these guys are good, these guys are bad, not in the same way. I found that idea very appealing, especially in the 90s when the TV shows were very much about good and bad. Um, and Magneto runs the X-Men. He was uh, he, he took up Charles's dream as his friend died. And so you get to see that given a different timeline, Eric really could do good with his life. That was the hook for me with X-Men, the idea that um, the characters were made partly by who they were, but partly by their circumstances, and that they, there was enough of a rich tapestry of different characters to present an entire alternate timeline for months on end and book after book after book. Um, and I just I fell in love with, with that, that smorgasbord of variety. And it's goofy as hell. When you read it now, it is dumb and silly, and uh, and it's, it's way too uh, grim, dark, and 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 technocentric. But um, and, and it also uh, it it riffs on Days of Future Past. But it's also a storyline that I've I've longed to see translated to something halfway decent. And it, it was almost the second season of Wolverine and the X Men, but they cancelled the show. 
and they haven't put anything in its place. They, there's an X-Men manga, which I think is 11 episodes long, that's been released since then. But Disney seem uninterested in doing Marvel TV shows of any merit. Anyway, you've already said that Charles is training as meeting people, haven't you? Part of what creates this arc of his character is that every time he engages with a, a, a different person and a different um, internal challenge that that person is facing, he almost seems to take on a little bit of that and start to understand this a little bit better. And so he becomes less of an uh, unempathetic git um, and more moving towards the compassionate man that we know Charles Xavier to be. Still flawed um, and, uh, you know, he's he's not always right and as we've discussed in the comics particularly some of his most interesting storylines are when he fucks up um but uh in the scenes where he is helping his students he always seems to know the right stroke points to get the best out of them to get um, you know, what, what will help them to, to find their way forward. So, for example, in, in Alex's case, I, I think it's the, I have complete and total faith in you. Alex has never had that before. He's never had somebody trust him. He's never had somebody say, I think you can do this. Um, and with, uh, Hank, he gives him permission to let the beast out which is something that Hank has been sitting on and squashing his whole life, which makes it somehow even more annoying that he can't get the simple um, uh, trick with Raven of accepting her true form. Although I suppose he, you could say he does at the end. But again, at the end, he reveals that he has read her thoughts, possibly for the first time. So he cheated. Charles confronts Eric about what he's going to do with Shaw, and Shaw says he's going to kill him. Will you allow me to do that? Will you allow that to happen? Just before that sequence, there's a bit where they're sitting for no apparent reason um, in front of the um, Washington Monument on the steps just in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and the, the shot pans around, and Lincoln goes from Eric very, very slowly across to Charles. And Eric starts off talking about freedom, but it's it's almost like by the end of that conversation, he's lost what Lincoln had, and it's gone across to Charles. I don't know if it's intentional. It could be like that documentary about The Shining, where everything is inter- over-interpreted. But uh, I just thought that was a nice uh, touch. And um, Eric's line about peace was never an option should really stop Charles in his tracks, and they should almost come to blows right there over the chess game. Uh, 
you can't take a man with that particular mindset into a war zone, not with the abilities that Eric displays. It seems like uh, an inaction that Charles will regret later on. There are several of them. Yeah. And Raven goes to Eric and Charles in turn to present both of them with her real, true self. And you get a nice little uh, nod to Rebecca Romaine Stamos. Which kind of made me flash forward to the bit at the end, middle of X-Men 3 where Magneto, uh, where Raven is cured by exactly the same s- intended concoction that Beast comes up with here and ends up just a normal person. And that Magneto goes, ugh, she's one of them now, and wanders off. And I just thought, fuck you, Eric. And it stings even more now that this scene has taken place where Eric takes her for who she is. But as you say, it's she's got to be a mutant, otherwise he's not interested. It intrigued me, the context in which he uses the term normal in this conversation, though. Because he says to her about looking normal, and he means looking like a human. But that's not normal for her. Looking normal for her is being blue and having stiff red hair. But I think we can probably discount uh, Magneto's actions in X-Men 3 and divorce them from the actions of the Magneto character in this because they're so, from such completely different writers and so, there is no sensible authorial connection between the two of them. Well, as you know, I am personally of the camp that believes that X-Men 3 needs to be stricken from the records. So, um, yeah, I'm with that. But I do wonder if this particular Eric was confronted by Raven, if she was merely a human, whether he would even give her the time of day. Again, which brings me back to what I said before about how he he sees her mutation. He doesn't see her. Mm. And Charles, for all of his um, compassion, well, basically uh, sees uh, all the human girls that he meets at the beginning of the film as a series of floozies and sends Moira off on her merry way with a wiped memory rather than treating her like a human being able to keep secrets. And what message is that giving to this girl who is effectively his sister when he says, um, what I want you to be is one of these chain of anonymous women who are meaningless, really, because they're all the same. Yeah. But again, that's not really a bad thing. I like seeing these character flaws. I like seeing that these guys have got long paths to go before they reach the men that they're going to be. And even then, they're going to be flawed. Absolutely. If if Charles went through this entire film saying exactly the right thing and doing exactly the right thing in every given situation, it would be immensely boring. I cannot relate to a paragon. Indeed. And we get the new old costumes. And yes, yellow spandex does look better. Thank you very much. It's not spandex. It's yellow, though. It's not really the yellow. I, I realized this when I was watching it. I, I wouldn't have minded if the X-Men costumes in 1, 2, and 3 had been black, but a, a, a really um, breathable, usable, athletic fabric if they looked sensible for their actual job. It's not the color that bothers me, although the color is informed by the Matrix films. Uh, it's, it's the fact that they don't actually perform their sole intended task, whereas these guys in... They, they were designed to fulfill a purpose. The, the yellow is actually the uh, same color and the same texture as uh, the original Kevlar in the 60s. And so uh, the, they were designed around flight suits with protective paneling. 
Oh, oh my god, of course, that's why it's yellow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Captain America's big target. It, this is what we want you to shoot at. Yeah. Shoot at the bright thing that you can see. Yeah. So yeah, while um, they don't look particularly uh, like they'd be able to blend in with regular civilization, they're, um, they're military figures at this point. They're wearing uniforms for a reason. They're unified, and they've never looked better, and they've le- never looked more like X-Men, not least for, because of the fact that they're actually wearing the classic X-Men costumes that were there on day one and have resurfaced repeatedly, specifically in the late 80s, early 90s. Ah, yeah, that's why they look so familiar. Mm. <laughs> also, the New Mutants wore a variation of them in the 80s. Yeah. And but again, it was, it was they were all adapted slightly for each individual. Similarly, Generation X wore a red ver- version of them in the uh, 90s. They'd, they've been there, and they've uh, surfaced again in the 20th century repeatedly. Uh, but it, it's not necessarily the livery that's important, as the fact that they just look like they're what they should be wearing. And they don't look horrendously uncomfortable. And they do look protected. It was uh, multi-sectional and very carefully constructed rather than simply what looks like an off-the-rack motorbike leathers onesie. Okay, so since we've already covered a lot of the emotions going on for this beach scene, um, what did you have to say about the confrontation at the end? Well, there were just a couple of things that I hadn't mentioned before. Um, When Eric faces off against Shaw, um, there's some great multi-dimensional lines that come out here in the dialogue when um, uh, Eric goes into the nuclear room and Charles says he's gone into the void. He is literally going into his internal void at that point um, and and closing himself off and isolating himself from being able to uh, uh, to be helped by Charles. Um, but what we said before about that there are points throughout this film where basically Charles could act to do something uh, to to avert tragedy and he doesn't um not because he's making a conscious choice not to do it necessarily just because it maybe doesn't occur to him at the time but i don't think he's got any excuse for this one when he's holding shaw in place because that's why shaw is in that frozen position when eric manages to get the coin to his forehead at any point charles could let go back away and let Shaw get himself out of that situation and he chooses not to and I think the reason he's doing it <clears throat> is because he wants Eric to choose to do what he perceives to be the right thing I also think it's because uh, while he is appalled at what Eric is doing he must protect his friend more than Shaw true and also Shaw is utterly infused with nuclear power at that point if he gets out of the submarine he could do untold damage yeah. so that there is more to it than that but it, it just struck me when we were watching it this time that Charles could have let him go and let him oh save he could himself. have done but Shaw needs to be taken down and what Charles was begging Eric to do was to do it in a way that wouldn't kill him mm. and it's not actually made entirely clear that Eric did kill him mm. he just drops him like a rag doll Shaw could simply be lobotomized. In fact, it's left somewhat ambiguous on purpose. Entirely possible, yes. But I think what's really um, painful about this scenario 
is it would appear while Charles is screaming, it's not simply the horror of what's going on. He's inside Shaw's mind at that point. Mm, absolutely. He can feel it again. Well, this is, this is a, a very blatant example of his uh, experience of somebody else's pain and the scars that that will leave on him. Yeah. I'd be interested to see uh, by show of hands uh, how many of the people in the uh, audience were thinking, Eric, please don't do this, and were actually on Charles's side, and how many were honestly thinking, come on, just fucking kill him. It would be a, a, a fairly sizable division, I think. Mm. It wouldn't well, be as simple as everybody's altruistic and saying, oh, no, that was terrible, Eric, you shouldn't have gone that far. Mm. I, I think if it's if it's a split between the two in all seriousness i think i'm in the latter camp but not in a yeah come on we want to see him dead just in a i understand why you're here and why you're doing this and if this is what you need to do then this is what you need to do i'll be i would also be in the latter camp but for two very specific reasons one very similar to that that this is something very personal that Eric and between Eric and Shaw. Not exactly a fair fight, but then again, Shaw wasn't playing fair either. Uh, so he has to do what he has to do. But also, in an entirely practical sense, this guy is a danger to the world. He needs to be taken down. I look just like Uncle Iro. Oh no, she's crazy. You need to take her down. There is you letting Shaw go for altruistic reasons, is the same thing that, that Charles says every time it comes to, should we put down Sabretooth for good? No, because if we do that, we lower ourselves to his level. And then Sabretooth gets out and slaughters 23 people, and that blood is on Charles's hands. That is not me sanctioning execution of murderers. But there are some very, very dark situations that sometimes require a lot of careful thought and you can't simply dismiss it as, no, never, we will never even discuss this. Mm, Absolutely. Well, apart from anything else, you have to discuss it. Even if your ultimate decision is no, every single time, you have to discuss it. Because as long as you're not discussing it, Mm -hmm. it's there. And uh, I mentioned before that the uh, alternate version of uh, Charles Xavier in the Ultimate X-Men had that young mutant killed because he was so much of a danger. I'd forgotten that in the uh, regular Marvel continuity at the beginning of the House of M, one of my favorite storylines, he gets together with the mutants and the Avengers and they have to decide what to do about the Scarlet Witch who has just gone insane and whose powers are of such awesome magnitude that she can change the world. And because they hesitate for a moment, she does. But they're hesitating because they're debating it. Well, I would that say... That debate is important. It must be carried out because otherwise, it's and again, it's, it's as bad as simply deciding, I will, we, we must never lower ourselves to this level. To simply say, well, this is a simple cut and dried situation is as bad. It's never simple and cut and dried. And in that particular scenario with the Scarlet Witch, because she has had this complete emotional breakdown and because she no longer has any semblance of control over what she's doing, or at least not in terms of uh, she has control over what she thinks she's doing. But it's all spiraled. What are their choices? Yeah. The real enemy is out there. I feel their guns moving in the water, targeting us. Go ahead, Charles. Tell me I'm wrong.
said yourself, we're the better men. This is the time to prove it. There are thousands of men on those ships that are just following orders. I've been at the mercy of men just following orders. Never again. So when it cuts back to the beach and uh, Eric is, is back out there shouting, he suddenly goes all Irish. I don't know if... if I, I, I can only imagine that his performance was so powerful that Matthew didn't say, uh, Michael, you, you've gone like Irish Braveheart at this point. <laughs> I think he just sort of let it slide and said, oh, fuck it. The German chap can go Irish at this point. Yeah, I mean, his accent throughout has always been a little bit hard to place. Well, he's, he's mostly came off as very well-spoken English, which uh, re- relates to English-speaking troops. Was it the Battle of the Bulge? I have no idea. It is possible for a German man to uh, 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 sound very English. It's unusual for a German man to sound very Irish. That's true. But again, I mean, if you listen to his accent when, when he's speaking English, he speaks with a very careful English accent. When he's speaking French, he speaks with a very careful French accent. Yeah. So on and so forth. But uh, I think he was just so emotional at that point that it, it, to, to make it true, it just had to come out like that. I was going to say that, that's kind of, that's, yeah. We'll, we'll go with that. If it means we get that performance out of Michael Fassbender, he can, be Irish, <laughs> which yeah. I'm sure he's very grateful to have my permission to be <laughs> Irish. <laughs> I refer you, Michael, to that previous statement on her. I don't want to misquote you here. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Anyway. Frankly, the Irish accent does not hurt that in the slightest. Should we make it a thing where every week we say hello to Michael Fassbender? Now I'm scared <laughs> by the concept of Michael Fassbender finding out about us doing that and listening to something in which I genuinely drool over him. <laughs> well, just this. Anyway, we can talk about uh, Haywire. Then follows the uh, accident with um, uh, Charles, which has been done in different ways in the comic uh, before. Uh, originally, it was some alien called Lucifer uh, back in the... Um, uh, the the 60s X-Men and uh, in Ultimate X-Men uh, Magneto purposefully flung an iron bar into Charles's back but this being an accident allows you to see regret one of the things that I like seeing most in um, explored in uh, entertainment riven all over um, Eric and Charles's face because this accident took place if it was intentional you get to see betrayal heaped upon betrayal, heaped upon regret. As you said earlier, Charles realizes that he was wrong to trust the humans. And uh, Eric realizes that there is a lighter path he could be walking right now, but frankly, he is too angry to take it. And he feels like he's gone too far already. That that feeling comes across very strongly here, that, that he's crossed a line now. Um, the point at which he uh, takes the bullet out of Charles mm. what I said before about the uh, the nature if he's using his power defensively it's all about pulling and that's what he does there, he pulls it he is trying to undo what he's done yeah. and he can't, when he's killing Shaw he's pushing 
It's a, it's an outward action. The point where he crosses the line is when he puts on the Magneto helmet that wonderfully rendered finally, because they fucked it up for the first three X-Men films, they finally brought it to the screen properly, and it is a beautiful artifact and a piece of comic arcana rendered here in metal. And... Um, when he puts it on, Charles is talking to him and then is muffled and shut out and he has put up a wall and he has crossed a line and he has closed a door. And that is when he says, I do not want to discuss this with you. And that is the fundamental difference between them. Charles will always try to discuss it, whereas Eric won't. Well, that's that's the parallel, isn't it? That's where you have to sort of look at how you want to balance the scales. Charles will talk and talk and communicate and explore and look at options and think about it and talk some more and then possibly risk not taking action at all yeah and eric won't even in the house of m that we just mentioned uh, they go to genosha to talk to eric who's looking after his daughter who is uh, recovering from terrible trauma and eric won't discuss the uh, solution that uh, is being put on the table Because it's unthinkable. So when Raven goes with Eric, uh, it's not like, it's not a sudden betrayal, it's not out of nowhere. Charles knows deep down that he can't give her what she needs and that Eric can. But it's a loss. He's, uh, he feels at that point, uh, far, uh, well, it's, it's considerably more than Eric because he's known, uh, Raven for 18 years. She's his oldest and closest friend, and, and then she's gone, which kind of makes you question why they never even nodded to each other in the previous movies, because obviously this is a new development. But in future movies, they can at least allude to that. But when it pans up and out, and um, he can't feel his legs, uh, again, fantastic performance from McAvoy. This is just tear-jerking. And the music... Uh, from Henry Jackman is um, emulating the theme to The Thin Red Line by Hans Zimmer uh, which was used shortly afterwards for the um, trailer for The Man of Steel oh of course that's why it sounded so familiar and I used it in Batman Breakdown We made fun of the fact that Wolverine cradles dead Jean in his arms and goes, No! And you got the crane shot up. And then Wolverine cradles dead Silver Fox in his arms and goes, No! And it cranes up to about 12 feet above his head and then stops. In this, the crane just keeps going up and up and up. And it pulls out and the, the beach is so huge and the carnage and the, um, the wreckage is so extensive and the team is so small. And you see how much of the world is out there and how little they can they can obviously affect it and it just seems like this unwinnable fight that they have let themselves begin 
it's a wonderful shot. And that's how you do a goddamn crane. what that emphasizes for me actually and it's not until you've just said that that I've realized it it's about the perspective Charles wanted to affect the world and what he comes to realize I believe as he gets older is that the only way he can affect the world and affect the way that that people perceive mutants is to interact on a personal level with individual mutants about their own self-worth and their own self-image and how they will then reflect that back out into the world. Yeah. And he utterly, utterly fails at that with Raven. She was his first opportunity to do that, and he fucked it up. Yeah. So all of the rest of his uh, attempts to reach out to other mutants are uh, to make amends for this lack yeah. of com- uh, lack of connection and compassion to the real Raven. Mm, yeah, there's just so much in this film. So much more than all the other X Men films put together don't add up to this. And seeing it lumped in with all the others, and people saying, "Oh, well, obviously X Men Two is way better." No, it's not. Empirically speaking, no, it's not. And we've given you damn good reasons why it's not. I just wish that Vaughn could direct more of these. So after that, Charles Superman's Moira makes a crack about losing all his hair, and then we get the uh, CIA saying that girls are too silly for the Secret Service, and then they cut downwards to the telepath and enter Magneto. And you get the uh, slightly too daft costume to wear for the whole film, because damn... But it's nice to wear for that one sequence so that you can nod to the comics and how crazy that costume looked without even really going full Magneto. Um, but uh, you got the uh, that little um, device on the uh, front of his helmet. McKellen was actually seen asking why that wasn't there in the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff for X-Men 1, and they sort of gave him a sort of, uh, well, it's kind of represented on the front, but we didn't want to go out all out that because it wouldn't look uh, real. But nothing in those fucking X-Men films looks real. Not really. Especially not his stupid magnetic machine. Um, but no, this is... The, the camp and the costumes don't really sit well and perfectly with the seriousness of the rest of the film. But you and I both thrive on the kind of uh, human drama that gets hidden beneath the costumes and hidden beneath the science fiction and hidden beneath the power just regular dramas aren't good enough for us we we tend to seek we need superpowers pretty much yeah i don't know why but um i just find family dramas too small they have to be on on a grander scale it's i think certainly for me i don't know whether it's the same thing for you but um it's the same thing as fairy tales and the once upon a time language it's the idea that there is a framing device that makes it clear that this well not makes it clear but makes it allegorical and makes you pay attention more yeah if it's just reality this is just things that are happening to real people if it's 
framed in a way that says this means more than just the things that are happening to the real people, um, then I, I personally then start looking for the, the depth and the meaning and the metaphors. But really, it's not actually the um, uh, the costume that I'm reacting to at this uh, final point. Uh, it's the glower on um, Fassbender's face and the music. Magneto's theme by Henry Jackman. Originally, it was going to be much more Bondy, and uh, this was just the bass line. And he was arguing with Vaughn and saying, well, you can't just have... That's that's half a song. You got to you know cut in with the uh, trombones and and Vaughn said, no, it's going to sound shitty. It's going to sound like faux bond. It's going to sound like obviously inspired inspired by uh, the, the music of John Barry for the early Bond stuff. <laughs> But there's something so powerful and 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 just thrumming with uh, charismatic anger about this uh, particular uh, tune. There, just I could listen to it all day. It's great stuff. So we're going to end on that. Uh, this is Magneto's theme by the great Henry Jackman, who uh, cut his teeth on Matthew Vaughan's earlier work, doing Kickass or part of the score for that. I believe he's also doing the music for uh, Captain America: The Winter Soldier. I believe he also did the music for Captain America the Winter Soldier because we're recording this before Captain America the Winter Soldier comes out and we're releasing it way after. Which, as you know, Sharon and I loved, hated, thought was okay. (laughs) We'll be back next time with The Wolverine. This is Magneto's theme.